Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable style spinoff from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, time travel, or maybe travel time, also how travel changes the rider, both for long-term travel and short-term travel. Now, I, I listen, before you start in here, grab some popcorn and a drink because we went almost two and a half hours on this. You don't want to miss this one. It's just over two and a half hours. We've never done it before. We have a guest on this episode and the conversation was flowing like wine. So no one bothered to watch the clock. All this coming up in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to give a shout out to some people that really helped the show this month, Adventure Rider Radio and Raw. Last month, there was nothing that came in in this style support. And this month, um, there was a lot of people that stepped up. And I want to give a shout out to them and a big thank you. Christian Corda, Scott Campbell, Alfred Imhoff, Michael McClure, Davey Harris, Noah Orlin, John Dulzo, Ryan Nelson, Jesse Homan, Sean Sarton, Noel Borman, Rob Tonneson. Thank you all very much. It makes a big difference to us supporting the show. And hey, I always say, you know, it's it's like think about what you do when you you are what you're paying for a cup of coffee when you go out or a donut or whatever it is you're getting. You know those small little purchases you make. Think about those and the value you get from that. And then think about Adventure Rider Radio and Raw and the value you get from that. And then, you know, we would love it. We really need it for you to step up and support it because it's built on, the whole thing is built on a model of advertising and listener support. It can't survive off of advertising alone. We need you to step up to the plate. And I've said it before, i got to say it again. Don't think that everybody else is doing it because that's not happening. We get a fraction of a fraction of percent of, uh, of listeners who actually support the show. So drop by the show. And I think $50 or more gets you a shout out on this show. And I think 10 or more get you some stickers. We got a bunch of different things. We would love you to sign up for a monthly support on our patron account. We set that up at listener's request and we would love you to join that. That would make a, a big difference for us. Anyway, here we go. Oh, don't forget this episode of Raw is supported by freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations. And I got something to tell you about Fresh Tracks on here, something that's very motorcycle related, which is very cool because the Fresh Tracks owner is a motorcyclist. That's what brings Fresh Tracks to us. Long story, you can hear that coming up. Now, here we go. ARR Raw. August 2019 season four. From the Canoe West Media Studio deep in the wilderness of Ontario, Canada, actually near the nation's capital. Here we are um, for August 2019 Raw Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind completely unscripted, raw, and personal. And this episode of Raw is brought to you in part by freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations, much like I hope we do here on Raw. That's freshtracks.co.uk. And I want to talk about Fresh Tracks on this a little bit later on, so, so keep your ears perked up for that. My name is Jim Martin, and today the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my regular Overland co-host, plus we have a guest, and the guest is Michelle Lampfair. Michelle, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, great to have you on. Now, we've had you on Adventure Rider Radio. When was the last time you were on? I believe it was in late 2015 when I'd just gotten home from two years in the Americas by motorcycle. Right. You've been traveling all around and you'd sort of, I guess at that point, you got off the bike and went back to work. Uh, yeah, I think I actually talked to you just before I went back to work. So I was still probably in a good mood, but I had to go back and get a job. <laughs> you, you were still in the travel mode, but, but now things have changed again for you. You're, you're a, a business owner now. I am crazy enough to, to say, but yes. Kind of in the travel business in a way. 
Yeah. I spent um, 20 years as a hotel manager managing uh, hotels all over the, the Midwest for a couple of different companies. And that was before I took off on the two-year trip through the Americas. And now I have a little uh, property of my own. So, yeah. Which you're inviting overlanders to. I mean, they're going to have to pay to stay there, but they've got a, <laughs> a nice place to stay owned by an overlander. Well, thanks for the clarification. And yes, I'd love to have all kinds of people come visit. <laughs> What's the name of it? Just so we can get it out there. You bet. It's the Chalet Motel, C-H-A-L-E-T. And that's in Custer, South Dakota in the Black Hills. It's a beautiful place to visit and ride. Wow. I want to come back to that in a bit. But first, we're going to get everybody in here. Grant Johnson, who is... Grant, I don't know what you're doing now. Are you um, You're in, what, late afternoon, I guess? Maybe dinner time for you? No, it's early afternoon. It's only one o'clock. Oh, see, I did the math backwards because I'm in Ontario. I'm away from home and I'm I'm getting messed up with the math. One o'clock. So you just got up. Um, careful there. <laughs> everybody, everybody knows you're you're not an early riser. Let's face it. No, that. I'm definitely not an early riser. But the problem now is with Susan having a job, she gets up at 530. Oh, which means she goes to bed at about nine, which really messes me up. So, I'm, wow, so I'm she's getting up. Adapt. She's getting up when you're going to bed. Well, sometimes, you know, <laughs> that happens. <laughs> Depends on what's going on and which meeting I'm trying to have a, a, a Skype meeting with, because I do Skype calls with all our meeting organizers all the time. So it's what what time of day is it for them? I'm trying to coordinate, trying to con- connect with Mongolia was really tricky. Is that so, why you work so late? Is because you have so many odd hours, like dealing with everyone around the world? That's part of it, but I've always been a late, late, late yeah, person. Okay. My mother still says she doesn't get up before 10 at the earliest, and then only she has, has an appointment at 11 or 12. Well, she's 97, so she's a late riser too. So wow. there's nothing going on in the morning. Why would you get up early? It's crazy. Well, the birds and the, I mean, Shirley, Brian, Shirley and Brian are here as well from Australia. And I, I believe it's kind of early for you right now, isn't it? It's very early. No, no. It's still dark outside. It's early so, isn't it? <laughs> well, early's usually not too bad, but this morning when the alarm went off, we were both actually still asleep. So um, we're just a little on the groggy side, I think. Mm. So and what, I can what tell time you, Jim, the birds, the birds are not up yet. That sounds like one of those stories, you know, I had to walk uphill both directions of school and bare feet through snow <laughs> and a headwind in both yeah, directions. Yeah. That sounds like one of those stories. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just gone 6am here. Good morning from Down Under. And yes, we have had a bit of snow here too. We had a really cold, icy blast last week where um, snow was falling less than two kilometres from where we are, uh, down to 400 metres. But uh, typical in Australia, you know, you wait a day, the snow melts, you go for a ride, no problem. It's a really odd. You know, it's one of those things when somebody's talking about their weather being so cold. Here it is hot. I mean, it's really hot here um, for August. I think it's, uh, t- well, not super hot for Australian standards, but for here it's hot and humid, 28, 30 degrees, something like that. Uh, you know, t- the thought of cold weather, I just, I can't relate. Uh-huh. <laughs> your turn will come. Yes, yes. And don't forget when you're shoveling snow so you can get out of your driveway, we'll be sitting in the swimming pool going splish, splash. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm going to hear about it. So what, oh, yeah. what, you guys have been having a busy summer, I'm, I'm assuming. Well, we're having a busy winter. Oh, you're, having, you're, what I, you're having a busy, on, you're having a busy of my summer. Yes, we're having a busy yeah. summer. Yeah, yeah, same, same way. Busy. 
Yeah, it's been pretty busy. I've, I've ridden around the country, as you know, and uh, in a week or so, I'm, I'm doing another 1500k ride up um, over the snowfields to Canberra and back, and then um, then escorting. I think we've got 15, 1500 registered riders for our, our um, charity ride to Canberra um, this year on the 13th of September. 1500? So, yeah. 1500 so far. We'll have we'll have 2000 riders go to that. Wow. Not a problem. Wow. Yeah. It's nothing like Sturgis, Michelle, but you know, uh, <laughs> maybe uh, one day I'll get there and see that. Well, you've got an open invitation. Oh, thank you. Hey, I want to come back to Shirley, but first I want to bring Sam in here because Sam's going to fall asleep because I know he's already into the hard liquor. It's it's it's, it's, it's <laughs> oh, so well. This is terrible. And I'm being ver- doing the variation tonight. I'm drinking Russian vodka tonight. Oh, Russian nice. vodka. Oh, did you get Absolutely. that from a friend? Yeah, a friend of mine goes to Russia and um, she brings me back a bottle. And it's this lovely stuff that takes a month of Sundays to slide down the outside, the, the inside of the glass, you know, when you tilt it. And, oh, this stuff is smooth. There is no bite in this at all. It just, mm. so anyway, sorry, I'm getting sidetracked terribly. <laughs> 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 Talking of damp, though, um, I mean, this is an English summer over here. Listen to you guys talk about the weather. So it's raining here. Um, but that's fine because it's warm rain. Um, but I'm just a little bit worried because um, I had a visit yesterday from um, two Adventure Rider radio listeners, and they're from Wisconsin, and they're over here touring for a while, and not met them before, really good fun people, so I'm just going to give a a hello to um, Ben and Molly. It was great to meet you guys yesterday. We actually got an email bragging about you from them, saying that um, they went over and they're, they're touring by car, and, and you spent an afternoon, I guess, showing them Exeter. I did, yeah. I mean, it's a really nice city, and it was a pleasure to show them around. And, you know, they were about three hours late, and they were so worried about it. But, you know, for me, I didn't care. I'm working from home, so I can juggle what I'm doing. Um, but uh, the beauty of it was all of those hours that they were late, it was raining. Just as they arrived, the sun came out, and it stayed out for the duration of their visit. So they saw Exeter at its best. Perfect. <laughs> well, Ben wrote an email to us uh, to let us know that he had dropped by, and he was just so impressed with you and and what you did, and taking the time out of your uh, out of your busy schedule to show them around. So that's that's pretty cool, you know, to have somebody come over and, and drop by. Now, what did they do? They email you ahead of time? Yeah, no, they emailed. Um, really nice, um, a couple of emails, and um, we just got on straight away over email and. I just happened to be here. So I said to them, yeah, come on. If you're passing this way, then um, stop off. Let's go walkies. Very so cool. Exactly so there you have it. If you're going to London and you uh, want a tour guide, just get a hold of Sam. because <laughs> <laughs> My fees are very reasonable, Jeff. We're going to do this. <laughs> hey, Sam. Yes, mate. Can you get me tickets to the cricket? <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah, not, not a problem. Um, hang on a minute. Are we talking about the one that chirps or the one that clicks? <laughs> the one that starts in about two hours. <laughs> oh, that one. Yeah, no worries at, at, at all, I think. <laughs> I think I can get you TV tickets. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll have TV tickets tonight. Uh, good stuff. It'd be interesting to see what actually happens with this match. It's um, oh, to the bone. Oh, well, you can keep on whinging. Oh, our our favourite no. bowl is not playing. Oh, surely. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Yeah, I, I, can't, no, no, no. I don't even understand yeah. the cricket thing. I have no clue what you guys are talking about as far as I know a cricket makes noise and jumps around and is generally referred to as an insect. That's, all I know yeah, that's what we're cricket. talking about, Jim. Oh, God, then I'm with you. 
<laughs> Shirley, you've been following the news lately, I, I understand. I have. I have, Jim, and there's a story that um, has made big news here, and I must admit it's um, deeply affected me. So often on this program we talk about the places where it's dangerous to travel, and I just want to say that um, danger can lurk anywhere. There's been a story here about a young Australian man, Lucas Fowler, and his American girlfriend, China Deese, who were just spirited, beautiful young people. They weren't on a motorcycle. They were travelling in a van. They met in a, um, a backpackers hostel in Croatia uh, and he came back to Australia and saved like Billy O so they could um, travel again and they were on their way to Alaska and unfortunately they met evil in the purest form and were murdered on the Alaska Highway. I can only presume it did make news in Canada because it happened, you know, it happened in Canada, obviously, yeah. and also a, a university professor from um, Vancouver was also murdered by two young men who in the end took their own lives, but they were just armed to the hilt and going off t to kill. I mean, it's just, it's just to me the most appalling story because this young couple were doing what they dreamed to do. Their father, uh, Lucas's father who actually is a policeman in Sydney, said that, you know, his son was just living the dream. He was so much in love with China. She was so much in love with him. They'd saved their money so they could travel together. And the last footage they had of them, which they show on television here all the time, unfortunately, is they're in a petrol station and she's standing next to the Bowser. He's put the petrol hose into the van and comes over and they have a hug and then she goes off and cleans the windscreen. And to me, it's just two young people living their dream and they met, met pure evil on the highway. So people always talk about, oh, don't go to Iran, don't go to Pakistan, it's dangerous. Unfortunately, things happen in the most beautiful of places and we know how beautiful that wilderness is up there in northern British Columbia. So um, far lay the three victims of those two evil boys, and I won't even say their names. They were teenagers, those boys, who took those lives. It's it's really bizarre. It made huge news here. There's a huge, what they called, manhunt on for them um, yeah. as they check for them. It, it, the whole thing is really sad. What makes people do these just horrific things. I, I don't know, but but I mean, I, I and I get what you're trying to say here. Is you're, um, you know, I think what you're trying to say is you're trying to say it's not necessarily a reflection on travel is dangerous. This is just a random thing because these guys were random. Whatever their motive was, what why why they did it, who knows? It could have been a local. Who knows? You know, it it, it appears at this point anyway to have been totally random. Yep, and just totally evil. And yeah. I think that's what I am trying to say, Jim. People worry about traveling in exotic locations but you know if you go unfortunately in this day and age if you're going to bump into evil it can happen anywhere mm -hmm. but these young this young couple was living their dream and uh it's something we've all done and hope to continue to do and we encourage people to do and everyone should just do it because you just don't know what's around the corner no, that's a very good and a very sad thought, but I'm glad you brought it up because it's certainly, oh, I think yeah. I think it's been in the news everywhere and, and it gets I'm everyone sorry, thinking. I'm sorry it's a downer. No, I'm sorry I, it's a downer, but it's a story that's really affected me and I've just thought about this young couple so much about, you know, how they were living their life and, and how much they were enjoying themselves. 
and uh, it's something we all do and and, uh, and we want people to continue to do. And, and is your, your, your thing that your thought process now more that we should get out there and do those things because you never know what's going to happen or is it the travel aspect or both? Well, that actually is why Brian and I um, started traveling because you just don't know what's around the corner yeah. um, and uh, you just don't know how long you've got. Um, we were motivated by my sister died of breast cancer and one of her things was if only I had and um, she had several if only she had done before she died and we decided we didn't want to have any or not many if only moments so that was um, one of the main reasons we packed up everything uh, when we did back in 2003. Mm. And that goes for for um, anyone doing anything, whether it's travel or anything you want to do in life. But and, and I was just going to say, like, so so that was random. It's not necessarily this. I don't think from from what I've learned here, it's not necessarily that they were traveling, that they were targeted for that. But there's also no. been other mass shootings, and I don't want to get into that. But I'm just saying that you know, there's people going shopping, so you you know, it, it can happen anywhere. We we know this, that's and, right. and it's worth acknowledging. That's- and, and I think that's that's also what I wanted to get across is it can happen anywhere. And so don't be frightened of places like Iran and Pakistan and, and the wilderness. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if the travel is going to make you happy, just do it. Shirley, just, uh, you know, I'm really getting what you're talking about. And before I set off on the big trip, and it kind of fits with what you're saying, but in a mechanical way, I guess. Um, somebody said to me, look, um, if you can make it all the way across Europe without your motorcycle being stolen, then you make it around the rest of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Which you did. And, you know, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, people think of Europe as being mostly a safe place to be. And the rest of the world, so much of it not being a safe place to be. Uh, yeah. If it, you're going to get anything stolen, it'll get stolen in Europe, of that, course. That, yes. That's a statistical fact. <laughs> it is. Is that right, Brian? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, Europe, and particularly England, I think, is one of the hotspots for um, motorcycle theft. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, we do yes. have a problem with motorcycle theft at the moment, that's for sure. It's Has a very been sad for years now. Has been for years. What are they doing with the bikes? Um, a lot of the time they've been broken and sold off for spares. Um, quite a bit of the time they're being put into containers and shipped to developing world countries. Uh-huh. Um and other times they're just being joy-ridden and smashed and burnt. Yeah. It doesn't seem to matter how well you lock them up either. I always remember the story that was in I think, Motorcycle News when, a few years ago, and I was living there. Uh, this guy had several Ducatis locked in his garage. It was a concrete block. It was heavily locked down. The bikes were locked down inside. And he opened the door one morning to go in and go for a ride, and the bikes were all gone. And he looked up, and there was a hole in the roof. <laughs> wow. They couldn't get in through the walls or the door, so they went in through the roof. Mm-hmm. If oh, they there's wanted, always they a way. Yeah, there's always there's a always. way. No, absolutely. You know, in, in the UK, you see um, CCTV footage of um, a van um, pulling up, five guys jumping out. One opens the doors. The other um, four guys have got a couple of sections of scaffold bar. They stick that through the wheels. They lift the bike up, bung it in the back of the van, and they're gone. Mm-hmm. And they can they can load a bike in in, in 30 seconds. Yeah. What might work? But the point, the point that I'm trying to make with that, though, is that you know there are pockets of, of trouble in the UK. It's not a, a spread right the way through um, the United Kingdom problem. Um, there are large parts of the UK where there is just not a problem at all. Um, and to a certain extent, the problems happen because 
um, I don't know, five or six years ago, a huge number of um, police numbers were taken off the streets because there was no crime. And of course, crime has been creeping back up again because those police um, suddenly not being there meant that crimes weren't being stopped and weren't being followed up and that sort of stuff. But um, that will change. It's got to. But um, anyway, listen, why are we talking about more gloom? Yeah, exactly. Hey, hey, just before we go any further, I, I just want to point out the obvious. We, we haven't introduced Graham Field because Graham's not with us today. So um, Michelle's sort of filling Graham's space today. Right, Michelle? <laughs> I'm going to do my best, but I wish I'd had the chance to at least meet him virtually because I think uh, Grant or Graham and you, Jim, are the only two who I haven't had the fortune to meet yet. Oh, wow. So you met everybody else already. Yeah, I met everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's We met Michelle in a muddy field in Ontario. (laughs) At one of... At one of Grant Johnson's events. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When was that? 2012. Yes. Where was it in in Ontario? In a muddy field. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We have more than one of those here from what I can see. (laughs) It was outside of Barrie at an HU meet. Uh, That was was the first Ontario Travelers meeting. I wasn't there, but Susan was. And um, that was... Yes, you were. Was that the 2012? No. 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 Weren't you there? No, No, he wasn't. It was such a presence. I could have sworn I spoke to you. So there you go. <laughs> that was the wow. Grant. That was the Grant Johnson cardboard cutout. Ah. There you are. That's what I need. That was I the vodka. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I just wish it had been the vodka. It was a very muddy, muddy place, but it was fun. We met lots of good people like Michelle. And wow. back at you. It was fantastic. <laughs> it inspired me to take my trip. So thank you. Cool. Very cool. That's what we really? love to so, hear. So that it was talking to them, and I guess the whole thing at the HU meet and everything—that was your your impetus for your um, your America's trip. Oh, it was it was certainly part of it. I wouldn't say it was by itself um, the impetus, but at that meeting there was a women's only chat, kind of a fireside chat, mm. and I had the chance to visit with Carolyn Duval and Shirley and Susan Johnson, of course, and uh, loads of other women. Liz Jansen was there as well, and many of them were really encouraging about um, me just getting a comfort, comfort level before taking the trip. So it made all the difference, no question. Mm. That's one of the most dangerous groups of women you could ever get together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those chats are fantastic. They're they really were. good. Yeah, I've yeah. tried to sneak into a couple. I get kicked out all the time. <laughs> I wonder how they spot you, Brian. <laughs> Brian, why do you think I grew my hair? <laughs> it's the beard, <laughs> Sam. It's a dead giveaway every time. Oh, really? Oh, damn it. I knew I was doing something wrong. Sam, we I had somebody think... without a beard. Uh, I... had... Say it again. Go ahead. We had somebody without a beard, but a mop in his head. Nice, nice long red hair. <laughs> he got kicked out too. We couldn't figure out why. We thought that this guy was great. <laughs> well, for, for a couple of our, our topics today, we have to th- thank Sam for this. Um, the one that he came up with um, that we're going to start with is um, talking about people you've met, uh, maybe a couple of people that you've met on your travels that have, that have impressed you. Not so much other travelers, but people that you've met, people you've interacted with. Um, on route um, that bumped into you, maybe helped you out, um, maybe maybe didn't, maybe maybe did something bad to you, but but somebody who'd uh, pro- probably not that, but 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 somebody who's made an impression on you one way or another. And Grant, I want to start with you. Oh, that's nice of you. I think not. I think so. <laughs> um, 
I was thinking about that, and that's really hard because so often it's a fairly short interaction that you have with people. You know, a few hours, a few minutes sometimes. Rarely you have a lot of time to spend with people. So the one that really came to my mind was in Tunisia. We were standing on a corner in this little tiny town way south, well away from the tourist areas, trying to figure out what to do for dinner because we discovered that if you walk into a restaurant, male and a female, you get no service. We couldn't figure it out for the longest time. Nobody would serve us, nobody would serve us, nothing. You know, I waved my arm and nobody would do anything. And then finally a waiter said, no women allowed, period, go away. Oh, okay, right. So now what do we do? Um, and we met this, we're standing on this corner, again, just trying to figure it out. And this gentleman walked up to us and started talking to us in pretty good English. And we're discussing all of this. And he said, well, there's a restaurant that you can go to that's, it's, it's kind of quiet and you need to know it's there. There's no sign. You just find this door and knock on the door and they let you in and you can eat there. Okay, right. This is our first um, experience with a real strong Islamic culture. This is kind of creepy, and, isn't it? Don't you, don't you get a little yeah, worried at this point? Well, it's a little weird, but you kind of go with the flow. You know, the, he seemed okay. Um, so you know, he told us about this, and then he said, come for dinner with me tomorrow and you can meet my family and have a, a true Tunisian cuisine and really experience what Tunisia is all about. And we kind of went, oh, this is interesting. Is this something to be worried about or do I, do I feel nervous or, you know, we felt okay. So we said, sure, okay, just tell us where and when. And he explained and it was, again, it was very complicated. Um, but we figured it out and we went there the next day and it was a wonderful experience. We met his family and his children and his wife and the whole thing. And ate traditional Tunisian style on the floor, on the rugs and the whole thing. And they were, they were so friendly and so welcoming and, and wanting to know about our country and why we were there and what we were doing and all the rest of it. And it was a wonderful evening. So that was very impressive. And he didn't have to do anything. He could have done like everybody else did and just walked on by us, mm-hmm. just ignored us. Uh, she's not supposed to be there. But he was open to, this is different. They're obviously tourists. I will welcome them. Uh, I mean, in Islam, it, it, you're supposed to be welcoming to strangers and invite them into your home and help people. That's part of the culture. Uh, and he did that. Whereas nobody else did, and that was that was very very impressive. Did very, you end up going to the restaurant? Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, and it was fine. People were great. Huh. <laughs> it was really nice. Yeah, and there were women there as well, and and there were local women there without shadors on or anything, um, no head coverings, and that was fine. It was okay to be there. It sounds kind of strange. A, a setup, a, a restaurant with a door with no sign on it, where you knock on it and they look at you and then let you in. Yeah. <laughs> It was a little weird, but that's the way it was. I mean, this is a very, very traditional area. Um, there was no nothing in English. There were no tourist signs. There was literally nothing to help a foreigner at all. So when so. was the last time that same thing happened to you in Vancouver? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so why not? Like, What's the difference? I mean, I think I know, but I'm asking you. Why not? I think a lot of it is... You get into a big city and people are so used to strangers that they ignore them. 
a stranger doesn't mean anything because everybody's a stranger and you're running into a stranger every five seconds. Whereas you get into any small towns and into the backcountry, the people I find have always been more welcoming. I find this in small towns in British Columbia. I find small towns in Alaska. Anywhere you go, it doesn't seem to matter. Small towns and people are much friendlier and easier to talk to and they're much more likely to say hi. Grant, it's really funny here you say that because Ben and Molly and I were having exactly the same conversation when they were here. How small towns people notice, um, and they may they may stare at you because you are obviously not part of the usual scenery, but actually they're very open and receptive to conversations starting up. Yeah, I always found that. Um, I tell people all the time. If you're going traveling, if you're nervous about wherever you're going, you're going to a country that you've heard is dangerous, just go to the small town, stay away from the big cities, stay away from the borders. And people are wonderful, very friendly, very helpful. It's everywhere. I don't care. It doesn't matter where you go. Yeah, I think I've said this before. People from the city often figure if they're going to hide somewhere, they'll go to a small town and hide a small town. <laughs> that just doesn't work. I mean, you can hide no. in the city. You cannot hide in a small area because people who drive those areas, they know what they look like. When they see a tent in the bush there or tracks going in and out from a bike, they're going to go, hmm, who's in there? What are they doing? Yeah. Michelle, how about you? Oh, gosh, I've met so many incredible people along the road. Um, well, well, I think before one you that, tell your story, Michelle, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but before you tell your story, just give a rough overview of your trip that you did, that, that two-year trip. Oh, yeah. Um, left home, which is in, I, I was born and raised in Sturgis, South Dakota, which is a different kind of motorcycle mecca than maybe some of the others. <laughs> um, all of the Harley Davidson riders from around the country come to Sturgis for an annual of course, uh, rally. And in fact, they just left town day before yesterday. And it's so huge. We're, huge. It's huge. Like, this like was a, how a huge? slow year. This was a slow year and we had 450,000, they <gasps> estimate this year. Um, next year will be the 80th anniversary and they're expecting 1.2 million. Wow. <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah, it is. And it's a town of, you know, roughly 6,000 people. So when all of these people come from all over the world for that kind of an event, they fill up every motel, campground, pasture, uh, empty house that's for rent, uh, bunkhouse, guest room for about 150 mile radius. So it's, it's crazy. Man. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you left from there, from the from the motorcycle mecca, at least for part of the year, and headed where? Um, headed to Ushuaia, but via Newfoundland, which is not the normal route, I know. Yeah. Was that just a mix-up with the map? <laughs> yeah, that those darn GPSs, they're you, crazy. You got to Newfoundland and you said, yeah, so where, how do we get to Ushuaia from here? And they're looking at you and saying, you might have made a wrong turn. Yeah, exactly. No, um, just at the last minute, just before we were leaving on the trip, and I was with my boyfriend at the time, we were on our two bikes. Um, he had stumbled across a blog and decided he wanted to try the Trans Labrador Highway. So we went to do the Trans Lab before um, we headed south. So we actually left South Dakota, went northeast, and um, kind of took the roundabout way to get down to Ushuaia. And you probably regret taking the Trans Lab at this point. <laughs> Not at all. No, and I'm ho no, I'm I'm hoping someday to go back and finish it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Because mm, you didn't ride the whole thing. No, I, I 
Well, and it, I wasn't too far from finishing it, um, but had gotten to Happy Valley Goose Bay, which used to be at one point the end of the road and you had to take a ferry to connect to Cartwright and then finish the last section. But I did not. I um, headed south and was heading towards the coast and to the the ferry to go to Newfoundland and about halfway across that last stretch of road had a wreck and kind of derailed and postponed the rest of my bike adventure for a few months Mm. (laughs) until I was able to get back on the bike. So, yeah. I remember that actually, and that's in that interview that we had you on the show. I, I'm going to put a link in that in the show notes to that because I think people will be interested in hearing that story. It's quite good. Yeah, well, and and again, no regrets. I jokingly refer to it now in hindsight that I, you know, can walk and everything's good as my lucky break because I it really was an incredible opportunity to meet a lot of locals. So those are certainly some of the first people that come to mind when I think of meeting locals in their own community and especially people that kind of came out of the woodwork to really help me on every level. Oh, right. Okay, so we're probably circling back to this. Yeah, well... Yes, I would say so. Um, I think just so many people. There was a woman, there was a motorcycle forum that um, we'd listed uh, just asking for some help because, of course, I had wrecked the bike on the Trans Labrador, needed help storing it, getting it back together. I needed help with a place to stay. And a couple of people on the local motorcycle chat forum connected me with a woman named Tammy Perry, who uh, took Brian and I in actually for three months, complete strangers who had just landed in Newfoundland. And she took us in and made us feel like family and gave me a a safe place to recover and uh, was fantastic. So certainly she's, she's one of the more incredible people that I've met on the road. That is an incredible act of generosity. I just can't imagine that. So you hear some of these stories from from people like you that have had an incident and dealt with people. I know Sam Manicom has had a few as well. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. and the people that come to the aid with this open-ended generosity, I, it's just amazing. And it's because I, I think that when I look around in the neighborhood, you know, whatever neighborhood I happen to be in, I don't see them. <laughs> they're hiding somewhere, but they're there when you need them. Yeah. Yep. So, so quickly, where else did you get to, Michelle, on that trip? Um, so after Newfoundland, then, of course, came back through the U.S. and down through Mexico, all of the countries in Central America, and then down the West Coast and Andean region of S- South America to Ushuaia, and then back up as far as Brazil before coming home to the States. Quite an adventure. So when you think of someone who, who really impressed you, where do you go to immediately? Is it, is it back to the wreck? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say that. Actually, one that stands out, and I'd be curious to know if any of the other um, people here today have maybe met him, Jorge in Azul, Argentina with La Posta. Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I think he's kind of a legend, and I had not heard about him at all, uh, but he has, I don't know if I would call it a camp really, but he allows, you know, one or two riders that are traveling through to stay at his place. He's got kind of a gated yard around his house and a workshop and he allows riders to come through. And he's been doing this for, you know, years and years. It's, it's something that's kind of by personal invitation. It's not like it's an open house, but I, I feel uh, very fortunate in that I was able to meet him and go see the place. And it's, it's just incredible. What was it about him that that really impressed you? Well, that he 
he himself is a writer, but has never really been able to travel around the world the way that other people do. So he travels through the experiences that other people share with him in his hometown. So he's opened his door and his hospitality to people from all over the world. And it's amazing how many writers have been there and how he is a link that connects dozens of writers over the last 30 years that have traveled through that part of Argentina. I, back to the crash, though. I mean, I, I just cannot believe somebody would just respond to that because if you think about it any one of us you think about it now maybe that maybe this isn't the right crowd to say this to but but i mean if if some if you're offering something like that what if you were aggravating michelle like what if, what if you were <laughs> what if you got on their nerves i mean we're talking a long time you know i've got a friend right now at west he um he connected with a an old friend and he hasn't seen her for I don't know, like 40 years, a very long time. And he's, he's in his early seventies and uh, he invited her to come and stay at his house for three weeks, <laughs> three weeks. And he doesn't know this person. He just connected after all these years on Facebook and he had some, some issues, you know, he had some things that he had to work through. Now this guy's a pretty, um, pretty laid back sort of fellow. And, um, he's, he wants to work through it. You know, he's, he has her there and there's difficulties in how they get along. And I think in three months, like with, with you, Michelle, I mean, it's just such a huge commitment. I mean, I, I, re- I really, you know, have to hats off to the, to, to those people. Oh, no question. I mean, that's a big risk taking anybody, first of all, into your home for, any amount of time, whether it's a night or two, if it's someone you've never met, you don't have any references, you don't know. But I think she saw the condition of me and she knew I was pretty harmless. I was on crutches and fresh out of surgery and pretty medicated. So I I, I pose no threat. (laughs) Can I just add about visitors? They're like a bucket of prawns in the sun. (laughs) Two days max. Hang on, hang on. We had a divorce happen in their front bedroom. Oh, sure. we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had people who we met on the road and we said, please come and stay with us when you're in Australia, and they did. Uh, unfortunately, their marriage was not quite as strong as it was when we'd met them in Iran and uh, travelled with them through there. Uh, so they sat in our spare bedroom and uh, dissolved their marriage. Can I just say it was a little tense? Uh, that's really sad. <laughs> wow. And in the end, we just had to say, look, I'm really sorry, but have you got relatives in this town that perhaps you should be visiting? Yeah. Because this is just getting too ridiculous. We were tippy-toeing around our own house while they we had other visitors shrieked at too. each other. Yeah. We had yeah. other, other travellers. We had a bit of fun in there having a blue in our front bedroom. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah. Shirley, in that thought process, and I know you said that before about the, the bucket of prawns because it sticks in my mind ever since you first said it. Cause I, I know. <laughs> especially it's if you've a... eaten prawns, if you're into prawns, <laughs> <laughs> you know exactly what you're talking about. But but so what's your formula for weighing people up then when, you, when they contact you and and uh, you're offering a place to stay. Do you just do the bucket of prawn approach and figure you can handle two days? No. Look, we, um, yeah, when we meet people on the road that we connect with, we just invite them to come and stay. And, yeah. look, if someone was in Michelle's predicament and we were able to help yeah. out and she was heavily medicated so she wasn't <laughs> very close to <laughs> 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 But, um, you know, you just help out where you can. I mean, we've had people stay for a couple of months, a young German couple, Bert and Heidi, who we met uh, 
in Iran. Um, they stayed with us and had her father and brother come out and stay with us as well. And it was just the most wonderful experience. And uh, we all shed tears at the airport when they finally went home. But, you know, other people, most travellers only want to stay for a couple of days anyway. Use the washing machine, catch up on some local knowledge, uh, have a look around your area. It's a great thing to share the experience. And um, when you've met people on the road, you do have that shared experience of, of um, sometimes needing a little a little roof over your head instead of a tent and, uh, you know, a mechanical workshop rather than three tools on the side of the road, you know. Sort of and also it's probably some, somebody who knows what you're dealing with, someone who knows what, what you're going through and what, yeah. what the experience is, what you're about sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The shared experience. What about so, you guys as far as special people you've met on, on trips? Well, we've met um, quite a few, but not um, to the extent of um, Michelle having them have us live with them for three months. But we did meet um, in in British Columbia, when we um, had a catastrophic breakdown with the shocker of the bike just disintegrated, a lady called Sherry from the um, British Columbia Transport Department, Department yeah, came past and um, told us that we were in a very difficult place because we were in the middle of bear country and we perhaps shouldn't be standing on the side of the road. And uh, she called up a road gang and got them to leave their work and come down and manhandle the bike into the back of her pickup truck and then took us back 250 kilometres to Smithers, which she said there was no point going forward, there was no one who could fix the bike there, took us to a motel, made sure they looked after us, took the, um, took the bike to the Harley shop and made sure he looked after us came around the next day and said, that, you know, there's not a lot to do in, in Smithers, which we did work out after 12 days, but she took us sightseeing. She took us to the local um, First Nation communities. We met a totem pole carver and heard the whole story. It, she was just wonderful and she didn't need to do any of that. She could have just said to us, I'll ring someone to come and help you. But she went out of her way to yeah. show us kindness and uh, gifts yeah, her. we have. She sent me a beautiful um, carving that she'd done. She was a, a wood carver as a as a hobby, and uh, we've sent her Australian stuff to thank her for her for her kindness. Because without her, we would have been stuffed. I've got mm-hmm. to say, and not to uh, not to find a point on it. So yeah, she was and, marvelous. And calling, I mean, she would have just called it like the average person would just call a tow truck. Your expense, pick it up, and, and it would have been half. Yeah, exactly. But she pulled the whole road gang who were meant to be working. She got them to come down from wherever they were and uh, and help us get the bike onto the back of the truck because we couldn't do it ourselves. And they had to pull the tailgate off the truck, so we had to, a ramp to, to push the bike up and um, then jammed all our luggage in the back and, and took the two of us all that way back to Smithers. So, yeah, she was uh, she was terrific. Yeah, that's that's really nice. I, I had one. I didn't need any help, but I had one when I was riding in in British Columbia one time. Uh, uh, there's this little ghost town that I I didn't know about before I stumbled across this. It's called Quinell Forks, and um, I, I think um, I ended up somebody mentioned it in a store or something. And I'm just traveling by myself, and and I went to Quinell Forks. There's no one there except for this one person that was sort of set up almost secretive um, from 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 the rest of the area. There was areas you could actually camp there, but no one's there. And it's and it's literally still a ghost town. Nobody was at the ghost town. But 
I just thought, well, I'll wander over and, and chat with the person. And he could have easily just told me to, you know, to walk. Because as I got over there, I realized he's got a little operation going on there. It looks like he's up to something. And it turns out he's panning for gold. And man, this guy took the time to walk me through everything that he was doing, panning for gold and, and talk about how he was doing it and showing me gold and pouring gold out and let me check it out. I mean, it, it was just a... It was just a really neat interaction that I didn't expect. I'm still wearing my gear when I walked in there. I ended up uh, camping there. The guy loaned me a book for the night that I read about gold panning in the area. It's just, it's just really cool, you know. And it was just one of those those mild, uh, those those minor things, but the interaction really stuck with me. I think it was the kindness and the openness of the guy that that really got me, um, because I expected him to be much more secretive and protective, and you know, give me the brush off when I came up. So. So that was kind of cool for me, but um, I want to want to bring you back in here, you in here, Sam, because this is this was your suggestion, and, and I'm suspecting you've got a couple for us. <laughs> I've got loads. We we could all sit and do a ten hour show at least on on this, and I love the topic because so many people affect our lives when we're on extended trips, either around the world or in our own countries when we're away from home, and we just keep meeting characters, don't we? Um, and positive people, time after time. And doesn't it restore your faith in human nature? It takes away so much of the cynicism that we actually end up being um, pummeled with by, you know, media and all of the rest of it. But when you're when you're traveling, you're just out there and you're meeting characters, those those really positive people. Um, and yeah, I mean, because I'm a bit of a disaster magnet, I tend to meet quite a lot of really really kind people. Um, but I tried not to think about those when um, I was pondering this topic. And there were a couple of guys that popped into my mind. And one was a, um, a, a young lad called um, Abdul. Um, and this is a really powerful memory of kindness and risk. And I, I met this young lad um, in Ondaman, which is the old section of Khartoum, which is the capital city of Sudan in Africa. I was traveling with an English couple, Mike and Sally, and we were hunting, hunting for where the whirling dervishes were supposed to dance. And I thought, well, you know, if you're in Khartoum and you hear about the whirling dervishes, you have to go and find them. And these guys um, were the descendants of a religious group who'd um, kicked General Gordon in the nuts in the days of um, British control of Sudan. And it was actually, um, they were the beginning of the defeat for the Brits. And they're now outlawed in Sudan, but only the, the dancers were allowed. So that just made it even more interesting to go and see. Um, and I love wandering uh, Ondaman. Um, it's, um, it translates as the elephant's trunk because of the position on the River Nile that it is. And I tell you what, it's a, it's a medieval maze of fascination. As you're wandering through these tiny little streets, you're surrounded by stalls selling copper pops and candlekin bags and all sorts of things. Uh, but finding the dancers just really wasn't easy. Um, we were beginning to get a little bit... Um, baffled by it and it didn't help that in that part of the world at the end of the day cool the wind really blow uh, builds and it, it blows in off the desert and the stronger gusts well they pick up so much sand you walk along you can literally feel like your face is being sandblasted and the streets just take on this really sort of mystic hazy glow which of course doesn't help when you're trying to find your way and we'd got to the stage where we were just thinking, well, you know, we're not going to find this place. And this is pre-internet, so no mobile phones, no Google, no Google Maps or anything else like that. It's literally a case of asking questions and trying to find your way. Well, most of the Sudanese that we were meeting were very suspicious of us because at that time, not very many foreigners were being allowed into Sudan. 
And we were just about to give up, I think, when there's a voice behind us um, and just said, hey, you're looking for the dancers. We turned around and there was Abdul. And he, he was a young chap. I guess he was probably about 18 or 19. And he'd been going past on a bus and he'd seen the lost expressions on our faces. And he'd jumped straight off the bus to show us where to go. Um, and we got to them. And I have to tell you, the site was absolutely bizarre. These guys were wearing, um, the dervishes' costumes were in bright greens and reds, and they were led by an elder who was dressed in a sort of um, really raggedy cloak that, that looked a little bit, little bit like um, Joseph's Technicolor dream coat that had been put through a combine harvester. This thing was just full <laughs> of rags. And on his head... Do you remember the old rope mops that used to get? I mean, I haven't seen one of these things for years. Um, but he had what looked like one of those on top of his head. When Grant mentioned about um, the guy trying to sneak into um, the women's only group earlier on, that made me laugh. That's like a, um, like an industrial mop. Is that what you're talking, yeah. talking about? Yeah. String mop. Yeah. String exactly. mop. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Um, and we watched the dancers for ages, and these guys were absolutely fascinating for uh, just an hour they would twirl literally on one spot. So just one toe of one foot would be on the ground and the rest of their body would be spinning around that pivotal point and their robes and everything would just be flying. It was quite a magic sight to watch. I mean, I tried it afterwards and I lasted about three minutes before falling over because my center of gravity had just gone totally to pot. But going back to Abdul, while we were standing watching, he disappeared. And we thought, oh, well, you know, he's done his job and he's helped us find them and he's disappearing off and getting on with his day. But about 10 minutes later, he turned up with tea and donuts for us and he refused to let us pay for them. When we'd had enough of watching the dervishes, he then invited us back to see his rooms. But we didn't take him up on the offer because during the conversation, he told us that his landlady had been um, a political dissident and had only recently been released from jail where she'd been badly tortured. He said that she was in a real mess. And we knew that she would be really afraid of our presence being there because, I mean, the police were bound to be standing watching us from the shadow somewhere mm -hmm. because, hey, we were foreigners at a time where it was very sensitive for foreigners to be there. But it was just that made what Abdul do um, did even more special um and i i was I, we walked away from that and the thought that was in my mind was once again our journey had made us step through people into a completely different environment an environment that i never would have touched base with and it's just so often people that make a journey so special isn't it how far uh, how long were you into this trip when you when you, with this episode you're talking about a month into Africa, um, and I'd been riding a motorcycle for four months by then. So you're four months into your into your long trip is what it was? Um, no, just a month into it. Oh, just a month into it. Oh, I see. Because mm. I, I, I've just noticed that when you're saying this, I'm thinking that's being pretty sensitive. Like you're being pretty um, uh, aware of what's going on to recognize the fact that you taking him up on his offer could put someone else in harm or, or at least uh, potentially put them in harm. That's pretty insightful for a, a young traveler, a new traveler. I think that your senses start to fire on all cylinders when you're traveling. And it doesn't take very long if you are watching and if you are being considerate to the environment that you're in before you start taking on that sort of sensitivity and awareness. Um, and in the end, it's common sense, isn't it? If he tells you that, the, that his, his landlady had been arrested by police and tortured, then, well, then the pieces drop into place 
pretty quickly unless you're completely ignorant. Well, kids. no, and, and some people get so focused on what they want that they don't take other things into consideration. They just don't worry about it, you know. And, and it's easy to think about how things are back at home and figure um, nothing's going to happen from it. But um, I don't know. I, I think it takes some thought process. It takes some um, consideration for for others to not jump on an opportunity that comes up. And it's interesting what you said there because you said that you know you start to fire on all cylinders after a certain period of time. I'm kind of curious. How how long? Like, well, what sort of time? What sort of time frame does it take um, for you to start doing that? And I, th- I think we've talked about this before. I think we, we we've had some conversations on it, but that's only a month into it. Well, it's a month into Africa, um, so I'd had what three weeks traveling down through Europe, and I reckon that it takes about six weeks for me to come down from the rush of everyday um, life at home and to start really feeling that I'm slowing down and I'm taking much more note of what's going on around me and the curiosity factor is just starving, hungry for more information and more sights and more sounds and scents and smells and, and so on. Um, yeah, it's it's a great feeling. And but what I'm wondering, Sam, is that now being that you've traveled so much and you're still traveling, although shorter trips now, mm-hmm. is it is it now something that you're able to snap yourself into sort of thing immediately as you hit the road? Because now you're, you're going and spending time in, in different countries and in particular the States um, for shorter durations. Do you find that you can go and do you have to wait six weeks or do you find you can just go and sort of boom, you're in it? It's much faster um, than it used to be. I suppose, as you say, that just because I've travelled a bit, so um, I've learned. Well, for for our next one, um, Sam, I, I think I want you to introduce this this next one because it does come from you. Okay. Um, well, you didn't I mean, expect this, did you? No, I didn't. Thank you very much. <laughs> you have the podium. And it kind of fits in with what we were talking about just now, doesn't it? Because we were talking it does, about yeah. um, um, how long it takes um, to do things. When this question popped into my mind, um, I was actually sitting looking at my watch. And I was looking at it and I was thinking, geez, do you know you've done this a lot today? Why are you constantly checking your watch? And then the next thought process was, well, actually, do you know, when, you, when I'm on the road, I hardly ever look at my watch. I get to the stage where knowing what the time is, except for certain circumstances, really doesn't matter. Um, I tend to start living the day more by the daylight and by what my stomach's telling me. Um, and I guess for me... Um, Using my watch only really becomes uh, remains important when I've got things to do like getting to the right place to get a visa and be standing outside the door as soon as the door opens and, and things like that. But how about everybody else? Do you, do you guys um, you use your watches a lot or do you just slowly slip away from time, the specific time being important? I think a watch is not important as far as the time is concerned. I'm generally more interested what day or date it is. I don't even wear a watch as a normal thing. The only time I put a watch on is when I'm at an event and I've got a presentation at 2 o'clock and i got to be there. Otherwise, I just don't wear a watch anyway. Um, but Susan wishes I would because along about 1 o'clock, if I haven't had lunch yet, I'm starting to fade and feel well, I'm, I'm getting kind of stupid and dumb and just relaxed and mellow and I don't care about anything anymore. (laughs) Yeah, she's she's been not very complimentary about it. And she says, what do you, you obviously need something to eat. What do you want? I don't care. Feed me. (laughs) (laughs) I get low blood sugar. And if I'm, when I'm not fed, 
I'm useless. So from that point of view, the time of day is somewhat important. Um, so I find that time is more important than the day or the date. I don't really care what day it is or what date it is. To me, it's all the same. Unless no, no, the I other way around. The other way around, are you saying? The other way around? Didn't yeah, you say, time mattered. Yeah. No, I thought, time you said, mattered. I thought you said time didn't matter. The date mattered more than anything. Well, it's a tricky one. I think the day matters only when you need to be at the airport or at a ferry crossing. Otherwise, I could care less. And my normal day day-to-day thing. The only reason I'm on time for raw is because I've got reminders that pop up and say, you've got raw in two days. <laughs> no, two days. <laughs> I have no idea. Oh yeah, I do a two-day reminder and a one-day reminder and a two-hour reminder. Well, Otherwise, I laugh. So- <laughs> I, yeah, I do the same thing. I, I do as, as exactly. well. Because it's easy to get caught up. And, and I don't know, I mean, you've been, you've been self-employed for how long now? Many years, right? Many, many years. Yeah. Yeah. Same with me. I mean, pretty much, pretty much my whole life. And, and so for me, it, you just, you work on a different rhythm. And that's, that's why I was, I'm quite interested in this topic when, when Sam brought it up, because I wear a watch all the time, although I don't look at it very often. Um, because I don't really have those uh, other than interviews that I do for for this right now. I don't really have much of a schedule. Um, but that's again same with you, Grant. Though for me, it's it's not necessarily a good thing because it does make me sort of lean on other people, Elizabeth, um, for making sure that we get to places on time. We're always on time. We always do things on time. But it's it's her, not me. Yeah, I keep asking every once in a while for whatever reason. I'll ask Susan, what time is it? And she says, what are you, the queen? You don't need to carry a watch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really? You just ask me. How about you, Michelle? Uh, I mean, I bet you're wearing a watch. I'm, I'm not no, for okay. the first time <laughs> in but a long time. But that's because you have a cell phone. <laughs> well, yes and no. I would say I was definitely a watch wearer for 20 years when I had a hotel management career because I had meetings galore and all kinds of appointments and a routine that I had to keep up with. But I think I really learned to go away from wearing a watch while I was on the road. So it made a difference. Um, I would say, too, that Eventually, I realized I was only using my watch because it had an altimeter in it. So I was curious to know how many meters high we were. Mm, so that was your main Cool, that's for posh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had one of those in our trip around the world, and then it died, and that was the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, yeah. I, w- I was going to ask that, uh, you, you know, you, you just finished saying about having the, the job where you're busy and your appointments. How does it feel now? I mean, you went from that that sort of that that high pressure job to, well, probably another high pressure job, but a different kind. Because in your high pressure job, if you needed something done, you probably looked to who you could delegate something to. But now if you need something done, you'd probably look around the room and go, oh. I guess it's me. <laughs> That's exactly what's happened. So instead of calling the maintenance department to plunge a toilet, I walk over to the closet and grab the, <laughs> grab the plunger myself. <laughs> exactly. Or a, give yourself a reminder that's going to pop up tomorrow saying, do this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a different mindset. And it's it's funny that I think I'm in a better position to be a small business owner now after the trip. And I I don't know why that skill set sort of developed, but just being willing to be open-minded and think outside the box. And that kind of just helped me become more resourceful and independent. Um, All those things that, that have helped me and I continue to use those skill sets as, you know, as part of life, not just when I'm on the road. Absolutely get that. And that's a segue into our, into the next thing we're going to talk about too. But first I want to hear from Shirley. I wear a watch all the time. 
I don't. You know what? I am not surprised by those two answers at all. <laughs> and well, well, when we're on time, it's totally up to me. Oh, rubbish. Oh. <laughs> Total truth, Brian. Total truth. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Yeah. My, my, my working life ran to the second. You know, if you, um, you know, you're going to court or you're crashing the door or whatever you're doing, you, you needed to run to the absolute second. And um, when I first started traveling, I wore a watch all the time. Uh, but uh, as soon as I started traveling, I threw it away. And I haven't worn a watch since, really. Although only last month I uh, decided I've got about four or five watches and a beautiful uh, Amiga Seamaster that my mum and dad gave me from the 21st. I went and got them um, refurbished, actually. And uh, my kids gave me one when I retired. So I've been wearing that for the first time. And boy, it feels funny to put a watch on your on your wrist. It'll go back time. in the drawer. And <laughs> You have a watch that from, from when you turned 21 years old. That's the one with the dials on it? Yeah. It, it only works when the sun's out. <laughs> oh, very funny. <laughs> Can you know how to read that, Brian, with the dials now and not the digits on there? <laughs> it's a beautiful gold watch, actually. It's really nice. Geez, I, I would melt it down and get the gold. Jen, you Philistine. Yeah, yes. Oh, dear. Uh, Brian, did you, we, you said you got rid of your watch. Was that a conscious decision? Did you, you know, you started to travel and yes. you realized it was? Yes, yes, it was, actually. It was a conscious decision. I'd lived um, for years and years and years running to uh, strict time frames and timelines, and uh, I decided, no, uh, that's it. I don't want to do that anymore. And um, I haven't worn one since. And he knew that if he needed to be anywhere on time, <laughs> I had a watch. going to go to Shirley. And I would tell him what time it was and that he needed to get a shuffle along. Uh, and when we're travelling, I keep our laptop on Australian time. Why? Oh, she, well, just so if, if we want to contact people at home, I'm not waking them up. It's just a really... <laughs> You're a pedant. When it comes to the time. Yeah, I am a bit, really. <laughs> is it just time the time, Shirley, or, or does this stray into other areas? Oh, let's oh. just not go there. Oh. <laughs> we'll get a bit How think. long have you got, Jim? <laughs> oh. I have some really unusual. You just don't, I really don't want to discuss it here. Let's talk about the pigs let's on the line. Let's talk about the pigs on the Shirley, line. Shirley, can yes, I ask sir. you a question? Um, if you took your watch off, and you didn't wear it for two weeks, how would you feel during that time? Um, I don't know. I don't lost. think I've ever done it. Um, <laughs> yeah, probably a bit lost. Yeah, I kind of like to know what time it is. But, um, yeah, yeah, I probably would be a bit lost. I don't look at it all the time. And when we're travelling, I'm not quite as um, serious about we need to be at places on you know, on time. But if someone invites you somewhere and you say you're going to meet them at midday, I like to be on time. Right, I think early, half Well, you just, you just in case you get caught up in things, Brian. <laughs> Responsible. See, it's really fun when we travel together. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michelle had, had mentioned there um, about how um, 
Michelle, you'd said about your, you, you were more ready to run your business now after doing some traveling. And that's what we're going to talk about now is in what ways has travel changed you fundamentally? And is there a difference between long travel and short travel? I'm really interested in that second part of it, long travel and short travel as well and making changes in a person. I mean, can you go on a short trip for those who not, we all know not everyone can go off on a long trip. I mean, it's just, it's not possible for everyone or it's, um, or maybe they don't have the, the the motivation in some cases, whatever the reason, not everyone can go off on a long trip. So short trips as well. Can you find changes like that? Do you find changes that will change you fundamentally? And in this question, I have to throw in here that I think fundamental changes are very, very difficult to make. Um, you know, some people say, you, you you know, you you can't change, was it can't change the zebra stripes. That's what it is. You can't change the stripes in the zebra. Um, it's, it's always going to be the same. You know, personalities are, are difficult to change. So, I mean, I'm going to jump back to you, Michelle, because you, you mentioned this already. What does it do for you for your business? Um, oh, gosh. I would say, as I was saying before, that it makes me independent and learn to be very self-sufficient, think outside the box, uh, be open to help, but a number of different things um, that I think are skill sets that I really honed a bit out of necessity on the road. You have to, you have to make good use of your time. You have to be able to fend for yourself. And, and, um, yeah, I think even mechanically, I, I was not a person who's mechanically inclined, but I, I use even some mechanical skills in the motel. If I need to take a vacuum cleaner apart or whatever. Um, yeah, just, it's all sorts of, of skills. Hmm. I like the thinking outside of the box. I mean, I, I kind of think that you're probably that type of personality that that's um, you've always been a, a person that's driven. I mean, that's how you ended up so high up in, in the corporate world, right? So you have a, a, a bit of that with you already. But I guess thinking outside of the box is something you'd, you'd be forced to do more when you travel than than at work and professional. Yes, I I think so, especially when you're outside of your comfort zone. And that's, you know, I've I've heard the story said, or and, and maybe it's one of this, the people today that has said, you know, adventure begins when you pass beyond the edges of your comfort zone. Mm. And I, I think that's so true. So there, there's something to be said for getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And it's you're going to be challenged, you're going to be tested, you're going to run into a lot of different things in your daily life, in your work, and on the road when traveling that are going to make you uncomfortable and that's okay. It's, it's okay to have a little bit of fear. It's okay to, to not know how to handle it and to ask for help and just kind of do the best you can and, and make the best decisions you can with the information you have at that time and move forward. You'll get through it. I yeah, so. Nice one. I remember uh, Ted Simon saying something along those lines. I think he was talking, we were talking about his job. This is when he was young. And um, he said that uh, he was he would uh, get himself into a position where he was really doing a job he wasn't qualified for. And he really thought that you should be doing that because you're putting yourself outside of your comfort zone. That's when you're, you start to fire. That's when you start to, you know, really work work at things and develop yourself. So I, mean, yeah. I guess it's along the same lines, isn't it? I mean, I mean that's, that's, that's sort of life for us, isn't it? Um, you know, that's where we learn. Absolutely. That's where you grow. Yeah. I remember being drawn as a circle one time. Somebody was showing me a, drawing a circle and saying, that's your comfort zone. Every time you go out to the edge and you bump into something that, that, that is out there, you don't want to deal with it. But when you finally are forced to go and deal just outside of your comfort zone, your circle got bigger. And now you've got a bigger comfort zone. And, and that's obviously what we're talking about. 
Yes. Yeah, that was crossing my mind too, Jim, is that um, when you do a short trip, that, that can be really exciting if you haven't done a short trip before. And then as you do a longer trip, that um, experience expands and expands and expands. And when I did this last trip around Australia, I, that was no big deal for me. I, I really enjoyed it. But I had people travelling with me who hadn't done that sort of thing before. And they were so excited. By the time we got, you know, we've done, I don't know, 8,000 kilometres into the journey, um, they were getting comfortable too. And one of them actually said to me, you know, I can see I'm going to be really enjoying this and I'm going to put my bike on a ship and send it to South America and do it. And that's what it's all about, in my opinion, is encouraging people to get out of their comfort zone. But it becomes your comfort zone too. And I really enjoy that. And I think, um, as I said, I'm about to partake on a little journey up to Canberra and back. I'm looking forward to it because, you know, you're just out of your normal routine. and That's fine. We spend a lot of time get, helping people get past that current comfort zone because a lot of people have never been out of their out of their state or country or whatever. Especially in North America, it's a lot of people don't go very far. You know, a lot of motorcyclists, you know, they'll do the the, the coffee shops rounds. They'll do certain specific rides. I know from Vancouver, there are specific rides that people do, and then that's it. They don't go past those limits. You know, it's like a weekend trip or something like that, and that's as far as they go. And trying to get them to realize that, you know, you could just push the boundaries a little bit. It's not that hard. Oh, but don't I have to have reservations? Well, no, there's probably a hotel somewhere that'll, that you can find someplace to stay. And eventually people do get that message that, yeah, you know, it is actually possible because for somebody on the other side of your comfort zone, you're out of his comfort zone. Oh, well, okay, yeah, true. Um, so we we want to keep pushing people to expand the comfort zone a bit, to expand that circle, as Jim was saying. I think that's a wonderful thing. People get to meet other people that are not in their normal comfort zone, their normal range of travel, people that are different. They see different things. They see different ways of doing things. And I think that's a wonderful thing for people to understand what the rest of the world is like, what's going on out there. People really aren't that different from me, you know? It's not really that strange. It's not as scary out there as you think it is, like we were talking about at the beginning. For a lot of people, I think it's the, it is the fear of the unknown. Totally. It's You feel nice and safe in your home environment with people you understand culturally and you can speak the language and you can read the signs and you take yourself out of that area and it can be a little scary until you get the run of things and as you say grant everyone's the same really sure and one and of the things, you, one of the, you learn to get around without reading the signs yeah one of the things that's interesting about the way people think is that we tend to underestimate the dangers in areas that we're familiar and overestimate the dangers in areas that we're not familiar with. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah I think that's where everybody gets messed yeah. up. Well, you don't have the fundamentals. I mean, you don't you don't have no. those things to, to draw on. So in other words, if you're in a place you don't know and you're thinking if there was an emergency, what do I do? Or if something goes wrong, where do I go? And what and that that's what makes it so scary, isn't it? And really, so what, what we're talking about here is, is in, in particular what Brian's saying about the longer trip 
is that what you're doing is you're learning to be, yes, you're expanding your comfort zone, but you're also learning to, um, I guess, deal with things that are completely out of your control. Michelle referred to that as well. Do you you understand what I'm saying? I think the important thing is to understand that no matter what goes wrong, as always, you will figure out what the problem is and you will find a solution. It doesn't seem to matter. I have never heard of anybody anywhere get into a situation and not get out of it somehow or other. Yeah. yeah. There's, yeah. there'll be someone, there'll, there's true. always someone who'll help you. Yeah, now, always. Now, Sam, or, or you, you, yeah. I was going to say, when, you, when you're sitting in jail on your trip, <laughs> did you think that? <laughs> when you, you, you were sitting in there, when you've got a buddy in there with you, um, did you feel that way? I had 20 buddies in there with me, and um, no, I didn't. Um, fortunately, when I was taken out and put in my own cell, then I did. When I'd stopped shaking and feeling sick. Is that why they put you in your own cell? They thought you were going to make the others sick? <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Why, Jim? We're not going to go into this story, are we? <laughs> it, it's tempting. It really is tempting. I'm breaking out the sweat here, you know. Are you? It still affects me that does way. And the still... hair on my arms has just risen. Does it yes, really? Yes, it does still. Yeah, it, absolutely it does. Yeah, I can imagine. Most... Most people get to meet the locals at cafes and petrol stations. For Sam, it's emergency rooms in hospitals and prison. In prison. Yeah, sounds about right. Oh, dear. Well, my reputation is obviously preceding. It's well one known. of my favorite sayings, and it fits so well with this topic, is fear is that dark room where negatives are developed. Ooh. Wow. Isn't that such a cool saying? Fear is that dark room where negatives are developed. And it's just so true, isn't it? If we let fear take over, we can get ourselves in such a dark place that we don't do anything. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. sometimes um, it feels good to have that adrenaline rush because things are a bit scary. And then when they all turn really good in the end, you think, that was was quite amazing. It is. I think sometimes fear is a good thing. I think it's actually a very good thing. Um, But I think it's a very good thing when you change the emphasis of fear from being a negative into a positive. And what I mean by that is if you change the word fear into respect, in other words, you're fearful of a situation because you don't know how it works and therefore you're very nervous and uncomfortable about it. If you change it into respect for the fact that you don't know what's going to happen next, then it becomes a positive. And positive mental attitude helps you deal with so much, doesn't it? Mm. It does, yeah. Absolutely. And back in the days of films, I much preferred preferred positives over negatives. So, so just for those who who have never lived through the film <laughs> time, um, the dark room <laughs> reference with the negatives—that's the developing of film. That's because uh, I think some people may miss that in particular. But fear and, and respect. I was going to say that fear is is healthy, though. Fear also gives you the warning that something's wrong, something you actually need to yeah. be fearful of, right? And you don't want to discount that. Uh, uh, what, 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 I think fear is uh, is where you um, get to the edge, and you either fold and collapse, or you build yourself and you you find a way through. And you know, it, it's a physiological reaction to uh, for the adrenaline to take over. And being there, done that, where you are going in where people are running away, and you have to solve a problem and solve it in seconds. That's fear. 
Yeah, but in your professional world, you did go in, run into things where other people were running away from them. Yeah. That's different. Yeah, that's sort of the what does not kill you makes you stronger sort of thought yeah. process. Uh, yes and no, but you have to problem solve really quickly. Mm. And I, I see no difference when you're on the road it, it, where you, you, you come across, a, a, you know, so you have, a, have, a, have an accident, seems expert at that. But you, you solve a problem. You see, you know, you I've no idea what up. you mean, Brian. <laughs> Listen, he somebody said to it. me once. Somebody said to me once. Um, are you some sort of adrenaline junkie? Then <laughs> <laughs> I'd never thought about that. I'd never. I'd never considered myself to be anything even remotely that. I, I think of myself as being this guy that sort of gently bumps along and has a go at different things. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose there is a bit of adrenaline involved, and I do kind of like it. Yeah, that's right, and that's what you are, mate. You know, like you, you have an accident, you pick your bike up, your adrenaline's flowing. Oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to fix my bike? I need to get out of here. You know, those sort of things run through your mind. And okay, it mightn't be to the uh, highest level of fear, but you do get you do get to that problem solving ability. Yep. I just had that yesterday. I went to put my bike up on the center stand while I was working with the bars off. I was tightening up the steering head bearings. It fell over and broke my mirror, and I panicked. I thought, what am I going to do? I don't want to replace the mirror. It's $150. I solved it. I glued the mirror. Oh, hey. You know? There you go. Have you got priors for dropping your bike trying to put it on the center stand? Have I heard a story like that about you before? Oh, I've dropped my bike doing all kinds of things. (laughs) (laughs) I've dropped my bike doing everything. Most people drop their bikes while they're riding. (laughs) Jim's book is in the garage. Jim's bike is a history book. Because he can yeah. walk around the bike and say, well, this thing is when I dropped it there. Do you know what, Sam? That's not even true. this is when I was a silly ass. That's not even true because I don't know what they are. There's so many marks on it that I, just, I have no clue where they're from. I, I know one. Jim, I can That's tell it. you what every single ding and scrape on my bike came from. Wow, they must have had a profound effect on you then. I think you spent more time stopping and looking afterwards. Well, there's no paint left, so it's just one great big story. Uh, <laughs> I've got a I think, you know, when, we, when we're traveling. sure won't let you throw out, you know? What was That's that? where we came off. We've, I've got a bent pannier in the in the shed that surely won't let me throw it out because oh, that's where we came off at 100 kilometres an hour. And, and it also has my favourite Uruguay sticker on it. This is the first one to throw it out. Uh, one day we're going to bring them out in summer and put ice in them and put them around the pool for people to put their drinks in and keep them cool. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm there sure somebody go. will want to take drinks out of a thing that looks like that. I put a post up on Facebook um, oh, no, a week or so ago um, of the sides of some um, overlanding friends' um, panniers. Now, they I made love that. Isn't it cool? Oh, they, yes. made, they made a decision in life that meant that they weren't going to have motorcycles anymore. It's a long story and it's a spectacular story and absolutely logical that they made that decision, although it must have been incredibly difficult for them. But there they are with their panniers that they've done all of these wonderful journeys with and they've collected the stickers and the dings and the scrapes and everything else. What are they going to do with these panniers? These living history of a big chunk of their lives, are they going to sell them? Are they going to stick them in a cupboard? No. They cut the stickered sides off and they've hung them up on the wall so they're reminded of all of those journeys and everything else. And I just think what a fabulous idea that is. It is. It's even better than using them as eskies. 
Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, you get it pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, with yours, yours being, you know, such a, uh, I, I was going to say, well, I'll say it, such a relic with all your, your marks. I'm talking your motorcycle. Um, and, and the fear of it being stolen is, is what runs through my mind. You ever thought of doing that with yours, taking yours and sort of mothballing it? No. Just won't do it. What, my bike or my panniers? Your bike. The whole thing. My bike? Yeah. I was well, going to say, no. No, she's, she's the third leg. Um, she's the best friend. Um, she does everything that I wanted to do and I love riding her and I hope that there's never a stroke to nix her. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to go through life afraid of that. What about um, the panniers? Yeah, no, I've, uh, they, they're just brilliant. The only thing that bothers me about the panniers now is that, you know, some of those stickers, those wonderful stickers, and every single sticker has a story attached to it, um, you know, where I found it and how long it took me to get it. And the person that I met that I bought that sticker from, each one of those stickers has a story, but some of them are actually beginning to disintegrate now. And it's a real shame watching that. And I've been looking at it and thinking, oh, do I replace that with another sticker? And I'm really torn because, well, the country, if the sticker's gone already, then that country isn't represented on the on the panniers from the journey anymore. But it's a new sticker's just going to look completely out of place. But so that, what do I do? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Don't you think it's worthwhile taking them off now, putting a new set? I'm surely somebody out there will give you a new set of panniers for your bike. Take your old panniers off and and. No, she wouldn't be living without them. In any case, I live in a really tiny apartment. There is no room for those panniers to uh, go. But there is. You have a coffee table, don't you? No, it's too small for a coffee table. Oh, too small for a coffee table. Wow, that, you're living yeah, in what I'm living in right now. Sleeping up against the wall. How many square feet is this? I have no idea. Hang on a second. Let me just pace it out. Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't take you long. Wow. You know, listen, going back to the subject, I think we all grow on a journey, whether it's long or short. And because we're out there living on the line and because we're on full intake over mode, the way we change can be quite dramatic. And I was thinking about, you know, how do we define long and short? And does it make a difference whether it's a long or, or short journey? And I think um, when it's on a short journey, things start to change, but they're less likely to become ingrained. When we're on a long journey, the changes start to become a way of life. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, that does. That answers my question about, um, yeah, yeah, yes. it does. That's what I was going to say. Mm. <laughs> but you didn't. Now Sam life. gets the credit. Sam wins. <laughs> I was talking to a guy the other day who I encouraged to get into motorcycling or back into motorcycling. No, into motorcycling for the first time. And he went for a ride with his girlfriend for 30 kilometres and was talking about it incessantly. And you think, well, wow, isn't that great to have that thrill of that first ride? What's well, a 20 or 30k ride, you know? But to me, to me, that's nothing. But to him, it's everything. Yeah. And I think that's how you grow. Yep. So if, if, if Jim puts us all on the spot, what two things do you think a long journey have changed each of you? What two what, things? What now you're asking yeah. for a lot there. Mm. <laughs> Ah, uh, come on, Grant. I've got fifty-seven listed down here. That <laughs> <But> you do. <laughs> <laughs> I think the biggest one for me is an appreciation of the beautiful world and the people in it. Yeah, I think that's that really sums it all up for me. That's, that's everything. You just yeah, have so. no idea how much there is out there and, and the wonderful people and how good they are, and it just. It leaves me speechless. It's just an amazing thing. 
And you don't get that on a week or two week package tour. Now, I've gone on lots of dive trips. You, know, you fly into somewhere, you go to a resort, you go diving, you spend your day there, and maybe you go into town for the, the market, and that's it. And, and that's like a little bubble. You're, you're not in the world. You're not meeting the local people. You know, The local people are the people who clean your room, and that's it. And, and that's just not the same thing at all. I, I know people that said, oh, I've been to Cuba. Well, what did you see? Um, well, it was a wonderful resort. And that's it. That's all they've got. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you need to get out there on the road and travel through the country. You need to go through the borders. You need to go through the, the bureaucracy. You need to go through the culture. You need to figure out how to, how to get gas in a place where the pumps are completely different and weird. Um, you need to figure out how, how to get someplace to eat, like the problem we had in Tunisia. Uh, things like that are what introduces you to the people and the culture and gains you an appreciation and an understanding of the rest of the world and what it's all about. And that it's different, but it's okay to be different. What, what's the fundamental thing. change, though, that, that, you, that you experience, you know, when you learn this, about the, appreciating the world and the people in it? I mean, when you left on your trip, you were very anal. When you... <laughs> <laughs> Who, me? Never. Never on time. <laughs> no, but what, what, sort of fundament, what sort of fundamental change? I think it, it makes you more open to anything and everything. Yeah. I think that's that's the big thing. I mean, when you're stuck in your your normal home rut, there is a way of thinking that everybody around you has. Your friends think a particular way. You tend to think the same way. You know, sometimes there's somebody that challenges you. But until you get out and see other things for your own personal interest and 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 just to get a, an understanding of what it's all about out there, you, do, you aren't really open until you realize that there are a lot of ways of looking at things. There are a lot of ways of doing things, and there are all, they're all okay. It doesn't matter if somebody, some other country does something completely different. It doesn't matter. It's okay. It works. Grant, that's exactly one of the things that I wrote down. I'm less likely to think that I'm right. Yes, absolutely. As, I, as a result yeah. of having traveled. Far less likely. <laughs> I, I would wholeheartedly agree with all of that. And, and that's kind of another note that I had made, just that I, I feel like after traveling and the longer I travel, the more countries I've been to, the more villages, the more different people I've had interactions with, the more I feel we're very much all the same. At the heart of it, you know, we, we want to be happy. We want to be healthy. We care about our families. You know, even in the smallest villages in, in Bolivia or in a big city in Venezuela, people just want to be safe. They don't want to be afraid of each other. And people are so much more alike than we are different. And I think over an extended period of time, that really changes fundamentally how I see the world. I, I think um, it's smaller than we think it is and so much more alike than we think it is. We have all, the, all these political divides and economic divides and, you know, things that we, these perceptions that we have about other countries and other people, and those really kind of fall away. And I, I have um, a different perspective on people from around the world after traveling for an extended length of time. So right. We become more respectful of others and more trusting of others, don't we? Yes. How does that, how yeah. does that change your day-to-day life? Or how does oh, it affect uh, uh, it? 
Mm. Well, I, I think um, when you look at the news and you look at the megalomaniacs that are trying to control the world, you think, hang on a minute. Most people that I've met and most people, countries that I've been to, um, I agree with Michelle. We're all the same. Right? We all want to look after our kids, have a roof over our head, feed pe- feed ourselves, that sort of thing. And really, the only difference around the world is the politics of it all. Mm. That's and where, all. You, where you were born. And I, I think that is... That's made me more cynical of um, uh, the politicians and people that uh, are trying to rule the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm very cynical of the politicians and their motives. We yes. won't go there. Yeah, <laughs> let's not go there. But, but I was going to say, but but um, where they're born. I mean, let's face it. If you had been born, any one of us had been born in a different country, there's a very strong likelihood, and I would say it's almost guaranteed, that you would see things differently than how you see them now. So. Yep. It, and I really think that was great what Sam said, you know, about um, not realizing you're not right. You're not always right. Because yes. being right, you know, has everything to do with your pedigree, doesn't it? No, it does. I mean, this perfect example of that. And yeah. it's, it's happened in this country during this summer. You know, we've had some, some stinking hot weather and Brits aren't used to it. Now, because I come from Africa and because I've traveled a bit, then I know that first thing in the morning you have all of the windows open and you let... Um, the, the cool of the first thing of the morning just flood through and then mid-morning you close all of the windows, you pull all of the curtains and you keep the heat out. And for Brits, that's just completely different to what you normally d- would do. And so people in the middle of the day when it's the hottest, they're flinging their windows open and they think you're barking mad when you're closing everything and putting dark curtains up. Mm-hmm. But that's just because it's a learning curve and it's that's what they do. And I've learned how to do that because I've traveled in countries where that's what they do naturally because they have no choice. But that's logic. So so that's one aspect of it. That's the, the logic of a situation. But the other ones can be the way you view things, the way you view strangers, the way you view life, the way you view uh, dogs. You know, it can be all depends on where you were born or where you were you brought up. I think that's what Grant said. Yeah. Yep. Do you guys think that you've become um, kinder? as a result of long distance travel. Yeah. Yes. And, and, that's a good and more and more willing to help. Mm-hmm. And the yeah, number absolutely. of times we've stood in the days before GPS where you sit on the bike with a map going, I have no idea where we are. Um, now if I see people even, you know, in our hometown or when we were living in the city standing somewhere with a map, I go up and ask them if they need a hand to work out where they are or where they're going and you know, it takes two minutes out of my day, but it could save them half an hour of complete bewilderment. And, yeah, I think that's a sort of a kindness thing. Not so selfish, you know. We're all out there to help each other. Don't walk past when you see someone in bother. Ask them if they're okay. Do they need a hand? Even down to simple things that I notice um, between living in the country and living in the city, here if you see someone um, struggling to open the door of a shop, Someone will stop and open the door and help them out. In the city, they will walk past and think, oh, well, not my problem. Just simple things like that. And travel makes you more aware of small kindnesses can make a huge difference to other people. Yep. Yes. Yeah, I, I tend to go along with that. I find that so often people won't hold the door because you're, you're fully loaded with luggage or stuff or groceries or whatever, and people won't bother to hold the door for you. But Sometimes they do, and that's really nice when people do that, and I try to do that as much as I possibly can. I, I feel guilty if I walk by somebody needing help and I don't help. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's just like wrong. 
you got to do that. It's part of um, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. That's that's one of the basics of life, I think. Are you quoting the Bible? Uh, It's it's probably the only phrase in the Bible I know. But (laughs) (laughs) But it's something I really believe in. You know, we have to help each other. We have to understand and connect with each other. And the more we interact with each other, the more we help, the more we interact, the more we talk. Uh, the more we connect with other people, the better our understanding of other people and the better we are able to extend that understanding from our immediate circle to our city, to our country, to the world. I think that's important to do that. I agree with you. And I think some of being able to do that comes um, through humor, doesn't it? And I don't know about you guys, but um, I see the funny side of life so much faster having traveled. I think that's very that. true. Yeah, right. that's a good point. Yeah. You mean like when things go wrong? Yeah, something can go, can go wrong and, and you can just look at it and the first instinct is, oh no, like you were just talking about with your mirror. Um, and then you just think, well, geez, okay, that was a silly ass thing to do. And what am I going to do to get it sorted out? Or, you know, I'm sure I told you this story before about me pedaling the bike backwards. You know, I'm sitting on it one foot on one side and, and I put my foot on a banana skin. It just couldn't have been scripted better and over we went. And, well, you know, it was just a bad B-movie situation. But it was funny. And everybody that saw me do it cracked up laughing. And had I only just started the journey, I would have been really defensive about that and very protective. But because I've been traveling for a while, I'm lying flat on the back on the ground laughing too because it was silly. Mm-hmm. Yep, I did one of those too. <laughs> Lovely. I was sitting on my bike waiting for Susan to come out from a store. Some, this is in Malawi, I think. And you now the road is really crowned. I'm on the right-hand side. Which, so I put the side stand down. And the bike's pretty much vertical, but I'm comfortable sitting there. And I'm getting dozy and just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, she comes out. Oh, right. And you know how you grab the bars and give me a yank to get it up off the center stand or off the side stand? Well, don't do that when the bike's vertical because you'll immediately be on the ground. Wham! (laughs) (laughs) And she said, what are you doing? I'm just lying there laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it happens, you know. I could have got all pissed off, but fortunately the bike wasn't damaged and the bike was no problem. But it was was funny. There's not much you can do about it but laugh, really. No, you have to laugh. Do you guys find that um, you get more determined not to be beaten the longer you um, travel, but at the same time, you get to the stage where um, you're faster to recognize that another route needs to be found? Mm. That's tough because you, I never want to quit. Quitting um, <laughs> just... No, no, can't quit. Just, just no. I mean, Susan and I play Scrabble on the on the phones, and I won't quit until the last tile is played. <laughs> Even if I'm fifty points down, I'm hoping for a miracle. And here I thought I thought Grant was referring to a road. He wasn't going to quit till he beat it. <laughs> well, there's that too. Yeah. Um, oh, well, yeah. for us coming up through uh, South America during the major El Nino year. Um, the Pan American Highway had a thousand bridges lost on it, or the, the whole area, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru. Um, there was no road, but 
you don't give up because you got to go north. Sooner or later, there's going to be a road. And yes, there was, but it was on the other side of the Andes before we found a road that went north. But you don't give up. You keep trying. And you just enjoy the ride over the Andes, Grant. Oh, yeah. There's there's a hell of a lot of worse places to be stuck in the world than uh, in South America. Yeah. Well, other, other than the, the foot of mud and the total yeah, 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 roads. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gives you that something was to talk part, about right? when you get home. Oh, yeah. It was a wonderful story. And it was one of the real experiences of our whole trip yeah. was doing that. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I don't like to give up. But I, I will have to agree with Sam. You, you do get better at recognizing, okay, this just isn't going to work. So I have to admit, actually, we gave up a whole lot of roads. We quit, 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 quit. Till we finally found a road that would work. So, I'm I'm really interested um, to hear your phraseology with this because I used to think about it as being quitting, but then I started to think, well, actually, no, it's not. I'm just being flexible. Well, you're yes. finding what doesn't work. Yeah, yes. I'm getting to a stage where I'm just beginning to think, actually, I'm not enjoying myself. I'm likely to break me or my bike. Um, there is no good reason for me to carry on doing yeah. this. Um, all of the signals are saying to me, this is stupid. Don't carry on. So, and I used to be at the stage where, no, I would just keep bashing on because I knew that the next town that I wanted to go to was only 25 miles down there. And if I did another loop, then it would be 50 miles. And and I would plow ahead at it and I would just beat my brains out on it. And But I got to the stage, I don't know, was I being lazy? By getting to the stage where I was saying, but actually this is no fun. The longer it's, route may be really, really interesting and not so much risk. It's it's self-preservation, Sam. You get to the stage where you realise that going on is just ludicrous. When we were in Tajikistan, yeah, we could have pushed on and we could have got to the river and not been able to cross or I don't know what we would have done. But I was getting well over being tossed off the back of the bike in the sand, on the rocks, going up roads. Brian was getting sick of having to pick the bloody thing up because it's heavy. And uh, in the end, it was just, this isn't any fun. And if we keep going on, it could become catastrophic. So let's turn around and go back. It's no big deal. It's called being smart. Exactly. And that can be such a personal decision or such a tough choice to make because sometimes I've been on roads where I feel like giving up and I'm thinking, uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is for me. I could find a, a different route. And if I push just a little bit harder, I get to the good stuff. But then there have been times that I feel like quitting and I've definitely backed, backtracked and gone a different way. So it, it can go you know, either way at times. It depends mm-hmm. on the day. And it's also knowledge. In Tajikistan, we knew the road was getting worse. We met people coming the other way who kept saying, really, two of you, two up, one bike? Nah, you're not going to get through. And the further we got, the more we realised that they weren't um, bullshitting us. They were telling us that the road was deteriorating, and indeed it was. So um, in that case, but we've also had other times where I would have given up for sixpence and (laughs) Brian says, no, no, come on, just another half hour and everything will be fine. And nine times out of ten, another half hour of ploughing through whatever appalling conditions we were in, things were better. Yeah, I'm pig-headed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's one that, way Brian. of describing him. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that's very useful. That's what I was going to say. Is what Michelle was saying is it's personal. It's it, it. There's not an answer here for anyone. You know, to say that it's stupid to continue on or 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 it's stupid to turn back. It's just personal. It, it depends on you. 
and and there's no right or wrong. Yeah. There's no um, people shouldn't sneer at people who don't achieve what no. they've achieved. You know, no. as you say, it is such a personal thing, and some people um, are more brave or more foolhardy or um, belligerent. I don't know. There's so many reasons why people can pursue things and so many reasons why people say, no, this isn't for me, I'm out of it, but that doesn't make either of them a better person. And that is one of the key beauties of long-distance travel by motorcycle, isn't it? We're all individuals and we don't have to make our trips the same as the last 10 people. Um, I, I never forget somebody saying to me, why do you want to ride through Africa? It's been done before. Oh, Jesus. Wow. Find somewhere that hasn't been done before, Sam. (laughs) Well, quite exactly. My answer to them was, yeah, but they didn't have, they didn't meet the same people. They didn't have the same weather conditions. They didn't have the same politics. They didn't have the same personal experience, et cetera, et cetera. And you haven't done it before. That's what I was going to say. And it wasn't you. A million people, exactly. A million people can do things and tell you about it. Hmm. But if you do it yourself, you're going to have your experience. Yeah. And yeah. your experience will be as good for you as their experience was for them. And you might have done it all on tarred roads. You might have done it not camp, not free camping and facing wild bears in, in, in the middle of nowhere. But you're still going to have a bloody good time and you're still going to experience things your way. Yep. I, I'm yes. concerned about the thinking behind the person who said, but Africa's somebody's already done that. That's somebody who's got a real um, – goal mindset or mm-hmm. win championship thing mindset. And and that's not what it's about at all. It's I not. don't care if it's been done a thousand times. It doesn't matter. It's my experience. It's my trip and the things I'm going to see and the people I'm going to meet that matter. Exactly. And anyway, I'd just gone on holiday. Mm. And it's okay to do that, isn't it, to what Grant was saying. It's okay to do that. It's okay to go and have your adventure. It doesn't have to be a first. It doesn't have to be done with a certain bike or at a certain speed or, or you know, or a certain route. It's okay to go and have your adventure. Yeah. I hate this competitive thing where people say, oh, I did it cheaper than he did. Or, you know, I saved, I saved more money or I camped out more or I went farther in a single day. It's all nonsense. It doesn't matter. You do your ride. You ride your ride and you have your adventure and your experience and that's what matters. And whatever anybody else does or says doesn't matter at all. Yep, so there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the gospel according to raw. <laughs> right. Yeah. Done and dusted. And that's the way it is. Just the to gavel keep it has on dropped. That bi- just to keep it on that biblical theme. And so there the lesson endeth. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get those made into tablets and have them distributed tomorrow. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> From the mountaintop. <laughs> oh, you know, funnily enough, there was one other thing that was in my mind, and it was something that Michelle started um, the ball rolling on. And I was thinking about, and, and I guess we've touched base a little bit on on this in, in previous shows, but it's it's so pertinent to what we're talking about. When we are on a really long trip and the things that we learn start to change us in such a way that the things that we're learning become a way of life, one of the things that many overlanders, long-time overlanders find um, that they have a problem with is getting a job when they get back. 
Um, I mean, putting it crudely, for for many companies, we're not so brainwashable anymore. <laughs> um, the world's given us such a perspective, and for many companies, that makes us uncontrollable, uncontrollable renegades. And I'm being a little bit cynical about that. But actually, I think that in, in recent times, because more people travel, gap years have become more popular, more people are doing longer overlanding trips, um, that companies are starting to look at those who've come back with a different way of mental life with um, a much more open um, sort of way. Um, and for us... You know, when we come back from a big trip, I suppose the, the natural instinct is to, to go back or to think about going back to the form of employment that we had in the past. Now, of course, the longer we've traveled, the more we realize that we've changed and that we can't go back into that role in exactly the same way. But I don't, and I think for some people, they can go back into that job, um, but they can go back into it full of the awareness that the skills that they've learned while they've been traveling are actually going to be enhancement, enhancements for that job. But there are some forms of employment that those enhancements, those new skills just won't fit anymore. And for somebody to try to go back into that job, well, that's just beating your head against the, a brick wall. And that's where people need to say to themselves, yep, yeah, you know, I've got all these skills. Let's find something completely different to do, something where I can take all of those new talents and make something special happen. And while Michelle was talking about coming out of the, the corporate hospitality world and building her own business, I was thinking, yeah, that's exactly what you've done. You've taken all of those skills that you've learned and put them into something completely different, but taking on board a lot of the skills that you'd learned before you went traveling. And I just thought, wow, how cool is that? It actually has a label now, I reckon, um, Sam and Michelle, it's emotional intelligence. And when uh, companies looking for people who think outside the box, think uh, laterally, uh, have uh, more life experiences, they're the ones that are becoming very, very popular. And uh, there's a, a thing going around in Australia at the moment talking about employing older people. Uh, and um, that's one of their big things is emotional intelligence. I've sat on selection panels where it is actually a, a prerequisite that uh, you mark on emotional intelligence. We come back from trips with the ability to communicate with all sorts of nationalities and um, from the beggar in the streets up to the, the most expensive businessman. We've learned how to talk to all of those people. That's a, a, a massive skill for any business. We've, got, we've learned to have respect for other people's customs and their cultures. However weird they may seem to us when we first start, that's an asset or those are assets to businesses. But it's also the connections that we've made along the way too, isn't it? The people that we've met, the individuals and so on and they're exactly. all assets exactly yeah yes very I, true. I remember i remember when we first left on our trip susan's mother's biggest fear was first well her biggest fear was that she would never see her alive again oh, yeah, i remember you said that <laughs> last episode i think it was the last episode you said that's what she said when yeah. you were leaving i don't think i don't that's expect right. to ever see you alive again <laughs> but the the, the the continuing on from that was but if you do, you won't be able to get a job. You've had all this time away with no no record of your employment. You'd be unemployable. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, That's that has completely changed. And what we're seeing now is people are coming back from trips. And it's much like Brian was saying, is that people who have come back from trips and done all these things and increased their emotional intelligence, I love that phrase, uh, they're, they're hugely in demand. I hear all the time that people come back and they get a better job because – They've talked about what they've done and where they've been in their trip. 
And that's an important positive thing as opposed to it used to be, oh, you weren't continuously employed. You're, you're terrible. We don't want you. It's completely changed now. Mm. And I found that when I came back that I was offered a few different opportunities that I don't think would have been open to me previously because you're seen as being someone who is a stronger communicator, someone who can adapt very easily, who can face challenges and get through them. So there's there's a whole broad range of, of experience that you bring to the table and it serves you in your personal life and your work life. Absolutely. And isn't that just bloody marvelous? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really important. Now, I remember coming back from um, a three-year trip and I applied for 26 jobs and I had one interview and I swear the people who were looking at my CV were just cracking up laughing when they saw how much I travelled and, yeah, straight in the, in the waste paper bin. Wow. wow. Not, not anymore. That's not, their not loss. Yeah. But, I mean, back then, that was how they thought about it. Yep. Sure. Well, I want to. I want to give. Uh, I want to get used to to look at one question we got um, from a listener that we thought would be good for this. And before I get to that, I want to talk about Fresh Tracks just for a second. Fresh Tracks is our sponsor for Raw. Fresh Tracks is a. Um, it's a, a company that does um, team building for for corporations and um, quite a quite an outfit. But they've started a new thing, which is kind of um, I, I think would be a, a, of interest to almost everybody who listens to a show like this. They've they've got a new thing called Adventure Space, and um, this is really cool. Uh, the guy who owns it, Dan Collins, um, at Fresh Tracks, uh, put this together as a, as sort of an extra thing for them. Basically, what they've got is they've got a, a cabin and uh, a chunk of their property that you can ride on, and then a whole bunch of green lanes, which is, is sort of um, uh, green lanes, Sam? Mm-hmm. No, define them. Oh, define green lanes. Um, they're, they're dirt tracks that it's ele- it's legal to, to ride a motorcycle on. Okay, so they're they're all nearby, nearby the Fresh Tracks Center. So you can stay there or you can stay in their big fancy, they've got a big fancy facility as well, but they've got this little cabin that's sort of a traveler's cabin. Actually, it looks like an A-frame from the photographs on here, Um on the Fresh Tracks website. Anyway, if you're if you're in the UK or you're going to the UK, you may want to have a look at this. So go to the Fresh Tracks website, um, and uh, and we'll give that out at the end. FreshTracks.co.uk, and have a look at the uh, Adventure Space link. I think that's really cool, and it's, it's neat. You see this popping up more and more because Dan Collins, the owner, he's a motorcyclist. Um, he's ob- that's obviously why he he sponsors our show. Um, he he likes what we're doing here, and he's passionate about it. And you see, you're seeing more and more of this. I am seeing more people starting up these these small businesses, little ideas to um, accommodate people who are into motorcycling, and I, I just love this sort of stuff. Well, I, for one, am going to go and check that out when the show's finished. Yeah, that, yeah, that sounds little... brilliant. So um, th- this qu- this last question, I think, is good because um, basically it's from Anonymous. I, I was going to say Mr. Anonymous. It could be Miss Anonymous or Mrs. Anonymous. I'm not sure. Um, but um, they say that their partner's keen in coming and riding with them as a pillion. And they want to start off, make sure that she feels comfortable at low speeds and on good asphalt roads. But um, this person thinks that most of their interesting uh, places to explore tend to be down dirt roads. And they're saying that, well, we've covered riding with your partner before on other raw episodes and, and certainly on Adventure Rider Radio. They haven't heard us talk about the aspects of talking about riding with pillions in dirt 
gravel road environments. Uh, they're especially interested in saying and hearing from other, well, they're hoping to hear from Grant and Susan, Shirley and Brian. And I know that Sam also rode with Birgit uh, as, a, as a pillion for a while there. I have also done this um, in dirt and off-road situations. They're wondering about, do they stand, uh, etc. So Brian and Shirley, you guys are the most experienced uh, two-up riders here. How do you handle the dirt stuff? Is Shirley standing? Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, no. And I get lonely sitting on the bike on my own while he's standing. I do, I do stand up and I say to Shirley, you just sit and, and stay with the, with the bike, whichever way the bike's leaning, and let me do the rest. So I stand up and if I've got to um, lean uh, opposite, um, you know, on a dirt road, you, you have the opposite uh, gravity um, thing to uh, keep the bike up as upright as possible. Uh, I do that and just uh, compensate with um, Shirley's spelt like weight on the back. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, Brian. I, I'm, Brian. Not, I'm not from Australia, obviously, and I haven't been to Australia. I don't. What is the opposite gravity you have there? No, no. <laughs> right down under. No, a, that sounds like a great thing to have. I wish we had it here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad phrasing. Let's put this in simple terms for you. Now you know where you have the plug hole and you're in the northern hemisphere or the southern <laughs> hemisphere and you pour water down and... Right, uh, right. Counter steering, uh, counterweighting rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah, right. bad oh, phrasing. We do that here Sorry, too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I thought you had something special. Rather, rather than having sure have to do that, I just leave her to sit on the bike uh, and keep with the whichever way the bike is, you know, like um, as upright as possible. And I just do do it that way. And the other the other advice I get if we're just if we're hitting um, a dirt, gravel, sandy stretch of road is for Christ's sake, shut up and sit still. <laughs> <laughs> but surely, don't you find yeah. when, when Brian drops a bike, which I imagine is a fair bit, um, when he, <laughs> because you complain about it a lot. But I do complain about it a lot. It's not a pleasant thing to have happen. Okay, happen I didn't want to start you complaining about it again. I was just merely oh, okay, making sorry. that as a point of reference. <laughs> but don't you find that you get it the worst? Like Brian's standing up. He, he sort of steps off the bike as it goes down and you go down with a thud. Yeah. Well, that- Yes, that, I mean, what can I say? But yes, <laughs> and it doesn't happen that often. And I Brian also doesn't stand up that often. And, no. and I'd just like to say to Mr Anonymous that not all good things are at the end of a dirt road. Mm, I, I thought someone might go there, but but to them, they may see that because I'm particularly passionate about dirt and trails and things like that as well. So, I guess, and just listen, like going on the back on a dirt road. Yeah, that's a good question. No, um, she likes going with me for a ride. She doesn't like it when I put the bike down, which I almost never do. Got to tell you that, I almost never do. No, you only do it in the yeah. garage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the bike stationary. But but I mean, it's it's always difficult because I feel like she gets the brunt of it. You know, I I manage. You know. What it's like when you when you're the rider, you said you tend to step off the bike when it goes down, whereas the passenger doesn't have any of the cues that it's going on because the the, the pillion is stuck holding on like you're doing, Shirley. Um, and you don't really have any input, and you don't really get any feedback from the bike. I don't think as as to what's going on. We, we had we had one bad one. We um, uh, we were on a, a dirt road, steep incline, uh, steep gradient, and we've just we've just lost it and. Um, I've been able to do exactly that, Jim, step off the bike reasonably easily. But Shirley's sitting there, she's come down with the bike, and the first thing that hits is the shoulder and the head. 
mm-hmm. from a from a reasonable height, from the height of the the, the, the sitting position on the P and C. Um, and she was a bit dazed because of that, yeah. because. Um, and that, that was one of the reasons why we turned back on that road into Jikistan. I was over it. Yeah, she she yeah. had enough. And as I've said before, you know, when you do it when you're travelling with your partner like that, it is a partnership. You, mm-hmm. You've got to sit down and assess and uh, take on board everyone's opinion and make make your decision. And um, yeah, that riding in sand is really difficult. And with a pillion, um, pillions are very useful. When you come to river crossings, they get off and walk across so you can see how deep it is. That has happened. That has happened. We did it in, um, in Nepal. Nepal and um, if oh. my socks got wet, it was too deep. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a second. So why would well, Shirley? Why would you? Why would you walk across the river? Why don't you just tell Brian to walk across the river? Very good question, Jim. He hit me in a very weak moment. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't yeah, Susan happen now. This I walk. Yeah, Susan says I, says I didn't walk it. I'd also say that there are times when the road is tricky that I actually get off and walk oh, was, and, and Brian rides through on his own. Oh, that's right. There was a mud section down in Carrera Australia. It's, it's which was, done, we've done it more than once. Yeah, you, you end up going sideways. You think, well, it's a lot easier if I'm by myself here, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I've walked some that. of the best roads in South America. You know, I don't want you to think that it's all been on two wheels our travelling. But, I mean, I don't have to walk very far, but just to get through tricky bits, it just makes life a lot easier and a lot a lot less chance of you coming off if um, if Brian's just dealing with the bike. And what you've got to remember, Mr Anonymous, when you're riding two up, you're going to be heavy because if you're doing some travelling, you've got two people's luggage and two sleeping bags and two whatevers, you know. So it's uh, it's a it's a really different kettle of fish to riding one up through through dirt and gravel and where you can stand up and you're in total control. I'd be interested in what you've got to say, Grant, in relation to that too. Yeah, a lot of what you say I would uh, agree with, and I can, I'll can i actually tell one little story. Shirley will appreciate this. Um, we were in the Caprivi Strip long before it was paved, and the stutter bumps or corrugations were absolutely uh. incredible. It was, it was terrible. And this is an, a loaded R80 GS, and I finally figured out that the way to approach it was roughly 40 to 50 miles an hour, was okay, and we would just kind of kiss the tops, and it was okay. And it was, you know, kind of quite a bit of vibration, and we're getting pounded pretty good. And then we hit big, giant patch of sand, soft, soft sand. Oh, my Lord. So here we are, 50-odd miles an hour, 80 kilometers an hour, and the bike is just sort of waving around, and I'm going a little bit sideways, a little bit of a twitch, trying to straighten it out. And Susan says, what are you doing? And I says, shut up, I'm busy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm busy. I love that. <laughs> that, that that's right. Did mate. you drop it, Grant? No, no, we didn't. Oh, and yeah. we had that's more. Wow. We had did that bit of sand, and then we had some more stutter bumps, and then there was another bit of sand. There was no choice. I mean, this—I forget how long this is, but it's hours of road. And you know what I like most about that story? Susan actually saying, what are you doing? <laughs> like, as, if it's, as if you've gone out of your way to do these manoeuvres and it was just something you thought you'd have fun doing. Like, yeah, stop mucking around, around. You do that. Oh, yeah. Well, she talks and is quite happy. I mean, we've always had an intercom, so it's a, a conversation is kind of a normal thing. But the bike is, is literally weaving at speed side to side and 
back end swinging around. What are, what are you doing? <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> no, Susan's sitting, right? She's sitting, right. Well, I was sitting too. The only way to ride this, riding this standing up would have been stupid. Um, sitting was much more stable and solid. Um, on the standing versus sitting thing, on our trip, we always, Susan sat just like Shirley and Brian, and I would stand and do whatever was necessary when necessary. But most of the time, I would try and do it sitting. Um, because yeah. I think one of the things that people have to kind of get, get their head wrapped around on these trips is you're fully loaded, you're two up, you're in the middle of nowhere. If you fall down, it's bad. This is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. You, you don't go fast. You go slowly, you take your time, you putt, putt, putt in first gear, slip the clutch, whatever it takes. You don't fall down. Okay, you've got well, to be you, so careful. You yeah. try not to, but but having said well, that, you great, can. Right. Yeah. In, in relation to um, uh, the stutter bumps, as you call them, um, as you know, Australia is full of um, those sort of roads um, oh, yeah. that get chopped up. And uh, you do tend to pick out what we call bull dust, which is often known as fish fish everywhere else. Yep. Um, you can pick those patches by the different colours. On, on my last trip, we were moving into a um, an area out near um, Halls Creek and uh, uh, travelling on a dirt road. And I'm on the GS and I know you get to that, Oh, 80 kilometres an hour is about perfect on those because you just skate across the top. Yep. Exactly. And uh, one of the guys was on a Harley. Well, <laughs> I, I tried to tell him, mate, me, and I get up to speed, get up to speed. And he didn't. And we pulled up at our little campsite and he said, I can't see my eyeballs are bouncing around so much. <laughs> he couldn't. He couldn't see. He said, I can't see. <laughs> but that's right. About 40, 40 mile an hour, 80 kilometres an hour 80 on, a, on those uh, bumps is the way to go. Yeah, it's the only way. But uh, I think the important thing is for people to realise when they're doing this and deciding whether to sit or stand. And we stand, we've done standing. Um, we hate it. It just doesn't work. It's, it's really, really difficult trying to balance two of you standing up over difficult situations. I mean, I know there are some people who do it, but more power to them. But um, I think you'd have to spend an enormous amount of time doing it. And you would both have to be really, really fit and both really experienced at it. Mm-hmm. I think for the average yeah. person. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine on a it's fine on a small bike where you you most of your weight you can push through the the foot peaks. But when you're when you're on a bike that weighs more than you, you've got to put a lot more pressure on those foot pegs to change the direction of the bike. Yeah, especially so you're so loaded. There's just so much weight. Um, I, I find it's just so much easier if I if it's really really tricky. I'll stand, but 99.9 percent of the time. Both of us sit and we just pick our way through nice and slow and take our time. Yeah. Take your time is the thing, isn't it? I think it's, that's one, the critical thing. It's one of the differences between adventure by riding and overlanding, isn't it? Oh, totally. Yeah. Overlanding, you take care of yourselves and your bike because you've no idea where you're going to be able to fix either. Yeah. Well, I have a one story of a couple of guys. They were in Brazil, I think it was. Yeah, it was Brazil. And there, there's places in, in the Amazon where the road is dead straight for hundreds and hundreds of miles. It's ridiculous. And there are a couple of young guys in their early 20s. They were on, I think, 650 singles. And they saw this straight, 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 straight road. They just let it rip until there was a giant, huge ditch. And they hit it at about 100 kilometers an hour. After, and this is breaking. 
and they both hit the other side of the ditch and ended up in hospital, totaled the bikes, the whole thing. They were lucky they lived. You just can't do that kind of pace and speed. Got to just take your time. Sam, I I want to get back to to what you just said just just briefly, but first I want to bring Michelle back in here. And and Michelle, uh, I want to see if you had experience. Have you had a pillion um, on your bike or were you a pillion on a bike and, and stand up, sit down? What was your experience? Um, well, no, I'm sorry to say I'm not going to be able to add a lot to it. I've only, uh, I've only had a couple of pillions to take around a few city blocks, friends who want to go for a quick ride just to say they've been on a motorcycle if they haven't before. And the only thing that I can say, um, about being a pillion was that I rode on Brian's bike, uh, when I first got back on the road after having broken my leg. So I would, I would highly recommend to Mr. Anonymous just be patient with your pillion and be supportive. And I think that their perspective and their level of fear and their needs are just as important as the riders. Make sure that, you know, you're doing things that they're comfortable with too, because it's, it's very scary in some cases being in the back seat and having zero control. So Mm. hopefully they take that into consideration. Yeah, I, I think yeah. you nailed it there with it sitting in the back, zero control. I, I mean, uh, I really would have to put it to most riders who are comfortable with their bike to say, imagine you sitting on the back. They, even though you're comfortable with your bike, imagine you sitting in the back with no control while somebody else is riding it through a difficult situation and you can't see on top of that. Yeah. yeah. And it is, it is about the two of you. When, you know, when you're riding two up, it's all well and good to say, I'm having a good time. But if your opinion's not having a good time, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's defeating the purpose of the yeah. ride. Experiences are everything. Uh, on our um, charity ride we do, we take a leg of tea. So someone who's lost their mum or dad uh, and um, we ride them a thousand kilometres on a bike and it might be their first time on a bike. So I, I'm a, my um, committee members, we take the kids for a ride first, get them all the right gear, make sure they're comfortable, tell them how the bike works. And that's very, very important. And these kids uh, absolutely love it once they get into it, don't they, Sure. Yeah, they do. But, yeah. I mean, they're doing the first day is all like from 7 o'clock in the morning till 4 or 5 in the afternoon in the saddle other than a morning tea and a lunch break. And these kids, maybe they've been for a 10 or 15-minute ride on the back of Brian's bike or one of the other committee members. So it is a huge day for them, and invariably it's cold and a lot of time we have a bit of rain because the weather's not such not so good at that time of the year. But they get offered to go the opportunity to go into one of the support cars. No way. No, they, no, they love it. They're going to sit <laughs> on the back of the bike with everyone else. Yeah, because great. because you've done it right. You've set it up. You've got them comfortable with it and did the whole thing. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. Exactly. And that's part yeah. of their question for Mister uh, Mister Mrs Anonymous is that. Um, that it, you know, did you take time? And obviously, everybody agrees with that taking time and getting somebody used to the the feeling of being on the back before you get into rough stuff. And then even when you get into rough stuff, I would say that you know, if if you can ride like you consider your maximum ride a ten, I would only ride to like a six or seven with your pillion for for the whole thing. I would never go beyond that. Um, I would never take Elizabeth on on something that is challenging for me. It has to be something that I feel like I've got yeah. a really good handle on. Yeah, yeah, yeah good, good point. Yeah. And I went the, a three or a four myself. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah maybe that's right. <laughs> and um, also make sure your pinion has the right gear because it's all well and good for you to have good wet weather gear and uh, your pinion's in a pair of jeans and, you know, Kevlar <laughs> jeans maybe and good boots and a good jacket but getting wet or or they haven't got the right gear and they're getting cold or they've got cold hands because you've got heated hand grips. Not yeah. that that's an issue in our life, I must say. Oh, really? Much. Oh, really? <laughs> hey, I, I saw somebody, Elizabeth and I saw somebody the other day, she pointed it out to me actually, riding along on a bike. The girl on the back was in just a, a light shirt with like little straps going over her shoulders. I think she's wearing shorts and flip-flops. And, oh, my God. No, no, oh. I thought, you know, that's not so bad because the rider had bare feet. And shorts. Oh. Oh. Bare feet. Right. It was hot. I thought if you even have to stop at a light and put your foot down. I, I wanted That's to get a photograph. Hurt. Unfortunately, I failed to get a photograph of him or I would have would have snapped that. I would have loved to have got that. Yeah. Fed Sam dryly leather. I suppose human flesh is a form of leather. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, obviously he's a far a better rider than I could ever hope to be. Um, unfortunately, I have to worry about something going wrong, and obviously he didn't. But anyway, Sam, <laughs> I, I just wanted to jump back to what you said about the difference. You said it was it's the difference between something to do with traveler or traveling and adventure riding. And that's an interesting sort of definition that seems to be forming lately. And I, I think Grant had mentioned it um, a couple mm-hmm. episodes ago. I think it's a, it's a really good thing to recognize for us that those are two different activities, really. Um, and they're two different mindsets, which I know Grant has said several times, um, including this time about, you know, it's a, it's a, you need a certain mindset when you're traveling. You can't risk it all. I mean, I certainly know this from, from uh, doing wilderness trips that when I'm out, when I was out guiding trips, I would always, well, rein it in. Same as what I said, you know, you're, you're not doing anything near your capacity so that there's less chance of an issue because you know, the consequences are much greater or can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing I would add to this is the, uh, you know, you're talking about making sure that it's really easy for the pillion. More important, and Michelle said that the pillion should be having as much fun or something to that effect as the rider. The pillion has to be having more fun. The rider should be bored, mm. especially to start. Mm. It should be really easy. There's absolutely no sweat. There is no difficulty here. I'm, I'm bored out of my mind, but she's at her limit. Mm-hmm. And that's a different th- way of thinking about it. She's got to learn. She's got to get to your limit. And that one's going to take a lot of time. You know, if you've got 10 years riding experience, it may take her 10 years to get to where you are. Yeah. But you've got to give her that time to get there. That's so true. always ask, yeah. always ask, are you having fun? Is this good? Are you okay? Constantly. Yeah. And I think an intercom is good. And if she doesn't right get to that level, Grant, if she never Does gets to your level of comfort, and confidence, you can still go on really good trips and both have a fantastic time without pushing it to that nth degree. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And yes. when this topic came up, I, I asked Birgit. I mean, we don't ride Pillion very often, but sometimes I'll ride on the back of her bike and sometimes she'll ride on the back of mine. I mean, it's really funny when you see me riding on the back of hers because there's this <laughs> tiny little five-foot rider and then there's this six-foot-two bloke sitting on the back. The shadow is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> But she came on the back of my bike in India in the fall, and some of it was asphalt and some of it was dirt. Um, and I, so I said to her, well, come on, what are your thoughts on this? And she just gave me this little list. She's away in Germany, otherwise she'd be leaning over my shoulder and doing them straight straight for you. But this is what she said. Um, give your pillion clear instructions. Your pillion wants to know what to do. Don't stand up in the dirt because you have to accept that normal rules for riding the dirt don't necessarily apply when you're two up. 
you have to trust and you have to have a fatalistic attitude as a pillion. And that means that you also need to learn how to relax, sit there as a sack of potatoes. If you're stiff, then it makes more, more trouble for um, your rider, particularly when you're riding off-road. The rider should give the pillion advance warning where at all possible. So in other words, um, pothole coming or soft bit of sand or whatever, so your pillion can actually tense themselves and hang on that little bit harder when those bits are coming. And that's mostly what your pillion wants to know. What am I supposed to do? When Birgit and I were in India, we were riding along um, single lane and double lane asphalt. And sometimes there'd be a drop of eight or nine inches straight off the edge of this raggedy edged asphalt. And in India, trucks and buses, they're king and queen. And when you're on a motorcycle, you're definitely a very much lower class citizen. And one of these things coming towards you, you get off the road. And there was one day that we were literally run off the road seven times and we were dropping down from this asphalt into soft sand, you know, that sort of seven, eight, nine inches. And if I didn't give Birgit that warning, because I could see where it was, um, then we would almost certainly have fallen off those those times. Um she also said, um, your pillion needs to be um, comfortable. In other words, they've got to have great handholds in different positions. So, yeah, handholds to either side, but also a handhold between their legs, because sometimes just being able to change where you're holding, holding on makes a difference. But also, under certain conditions, holding on between your legs actually works better for as far as keeping balance is concerned. And she said, Sam became a slower rider for sure. Um, you guys were talking about this one earlier on. Um, have no fear or embarrassment to get off and walk a stretch. If you're feeling uncomfortable on a dirt, certain stretch of road as a pillion rider, then say so. Get off and walk it. Um, we rode two up up the Sani Pass um, in South Africa. And we did most of it two up, but there was a section for about 50 yards where Birgit just said, I'm not staying on the back for this, so I'm getting off and walking. And I was really glad she said that because it wasn't a good bit. Um, teamwork rocks, she says, and this is where having an intercom works so much, uh, works so well. We didn't have um, GPS or um, an intercom, so we had a, a Birgit nav system on board, and Birgit would give me directions, so a thump to either shoulder. Um, she says, I didn't thump you. I said, yes, you bloody well did. And I could always tell when you were in a bad mood with me by the weight of the thumps. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kidney so punches, I get that. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one. I like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go straight ahead. I've told you that twice already. Yeah. Go straight ahead. Okay. <laughs> She then she rounded all that lot off with, I think one of the most important things about riding with a pillion is that both have their responsibility so that there's never any element of there being an add-on person or a second-class rider. Amen. Here, here. Wow. Thank you, Berger. That That is some great little tidbits there. And, and I was going to go back to the comms that you mentioned. That's something we should probably point out and highlight is I think, for me anyway, I think comms are, are really, uh, I don't want to say necessary, but I mean, they can really make it much, much better because otherwise you're having to do the thump on the shoulder or, or the yell and it's like the what? And then all of a sudden, bang, you hit the bump that you were warning your pillion about. So comms would, would really be a great way to make everyone more comfortable. So the person on the back may say, hey, I'm not comfortable. 
comfortable here and then you can stop right away so that's that's a, a really something I think you should think about if you're going to ride with a pillion in particular in some rough riding and the other thing I was just going to throw in there and I don't want to get too down too, too far down all the things we want to look at but I was going to mention suspension because so many people run into suspension problems when they're traveling you're loaded already. Now you have a pillion on the back and you've got you and now you're going to go off-roading and start bouncing around. Um, something you just may want to consider. Yeah, well, I actually um, I actually have um, uh, really good shockers because I knew um, we were going to travel two up and heavy. So I've got Olin shockers. And what I actually did is I went to the Olin specialist here in um, uh, Victoria who... Um, um, provides suspension for race cars, told him what we were doing, and he recommended a stronger spring. So I have two springs, one for um, when I'm mostly doing solo riding and just uh, swap over. If we're doing a big trip to it, uh, the stronger spring goes on to, to just to help the shock out a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's very important. What yeah, a good too idea. often people too often people go out there on, on the stock shock. Oh, well, it's stock. It should be fine. No, no. The stock shock is designed for street riding with, uh, what is it, 8 kilos or 11 kilos per saddlebag maximum weight and that kind of stuff. They won't take it. They won't survive. The number of people that have blown rear shocks is staggering. Just about everybody <laughs> blows a rear shock on a trip. You're making me nervous now, Grant, because my um, lovely new and inverted Cromwell's F800 has the stock shock on it. And of course, I'm buzzing around with all my camping gear and presentation gear and boxes of books and all this sort of stuff on it. And I'm gonna, yeah, well, ha- have a look at your preload. Make sure you've got it cranked right up. I have you know exactly that. done that, but it's going to be might, interesting to see. Yeah, how it I'm does. using the stock shock on mine, and um, my stock shock has lasted me now. 80,000 kilometers. Now it's, I think it's starting to, to get a little bit, uh, not, not the spring, the shock I'm talking, um, but, and it's had a lot of, of rough use. So I think you'll probably get some miles out of it. Hopefully. Yeah. It should be fine for riding around the U S just, you know, you're on pavement most of the time. You're not on horrible dirt roads. You should be fine. If If I'm going on dirt, then most of that luggage is going to come off unless it's just, you know, gentle bimbling along. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gravel roads. Well, we're running kind of long because uh, probably because Jim's talking too much. Let's get into plugs. Um, I want to start off with Michelle. Michelle, what do you have for a plug for us? Oh, well, I am part of Women Riders World Relay, and I was interested in just sharing that in case anybody wasn't aware of it. It is a round-the-world women's relay. We're actually taking a hand-carved baton, and it left John O'Groat, Scotland in late February, and it's gone through 50-some countries. We're hoping to complete around-the-world relay where we pass the baton from female rider or female pillion to um, on to other women and lap it around the world. And it should be back in the UK, hopefully, if all goes well, by February of 2020. So it's uh, lots of fun. And it's connecting women around the world, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, great idea. You sent us an email about that, and, and um, we had the the founder, and her name escapes me now. What is her name? Haley Bell. Haley She's Bell. from the UK. Right. We yeah. Had, we had Haley on the show, and yeah. um, and it was really neat. But but I, I'm I'm amazed at watching this thing go on. You you see uh, social media posts about it. 
there's there's a lot to doing this because we just had somebody on the show there a, a week or so ago who was also involved in it. And you don't realize how much work it is to actually set this thing up. I mean, it, it sounds simple, pass a baton around, but you've got to, you, you're organizing riders um, and, and there's there's groups that are getting together for it. And of course, it has to cross borders. It's a lot to it. It's insane how much work and there's, I'm one of the administrators. There are eight of us from around the world and uh, I'm not able to put in as much work as I would like to, but many of the women are actually dedicating 40 to 80 hours a week of volunteer time just to make sure it's on schedule, it's running well, um, and we're all just pitching in where we can. So it's incredible. So Michelle, because you're the guest, we have to give you another plug. What's your other plug? (laughs) <laughs> I didn't know I got two. I know. Well, it's a well surprise. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to have to default selfishly to my book. I wrote, I wrote a book about my two years in the Americas. Um, it's called The Butterfly Route, and it's available on Amazon. Or if somebody wants to um, go on Facebook to SturgisChick.com, I can mail out um, autographed copies if someone wants to buy it, it that way. So, yeah, oh, thank you. Very nice. And the website again? Uh, Sturgischick.com. Okay. The butterfly route, route or route? Well, it depends yeah, if you're Australian a... or American. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the butterfly or route. <laughs> the butterfly route. Um, it, 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 that's obviously because that's where the butterflies go. Uh, yes, there's a, a little bit of a butterfly kind of connection here and there. One of the places that I wanted to go on the trip was to see where the, the monarch butterflies go to in the winter. And that's high up in the mountains above Mexico City. So I was able to go to a butterfly sanctuary. And um, that's just part of the story. But mm-hmm. it was it was a beautiful place to be and see. Yeah, isn't that something that's fairly newly discovered? And I say newly, like the last, you know, 15 years or something like that, because didn't they not know where they were going before this? They, they didn't, but I, I hate to break it to you, Jim. It's been longer ago than that. I was, I, well, I'll be 50 next year if all goes well. And I was... You mean you might be, hang on, you might be stopped from turning 50? <laughs> because I missed that I'm option. Sure so I'm it's something not. about strange South Dakota law, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Michelle, you can't turn 50. You can apply next month. Hey, I'm all for staying 49 for as long as possible. That's okay, too. But um, when I was a little girl, they actually published an, an issue of National Geographic that showed pictures of these giant um, evergreen trees up in the mountains above Mexico City. And they announced they'd finally found out where the butterflies, the monarch butterflies went in the winter. Mm. And it was something at like 10 or 11,000 feet in these mountains in, in really rural, undeveloped areas. People just didn't even go up there other than to cut trees for warmth, for burning, for firewood. So they finally discovered where they had gone. And that, I remember that from being, I must've been seven or eight years old and thinking, I want to go see that place someday. So it was part of the trip. Oh, very cool. Well, I may have looked at an old uh, issue of, <laughs> of National yeah. Geographic and, <laughs> and not bother to check the cover, but um, yeah, that's interesting. So it's not all that long though. I mean, um, you know, that they, the long ago that they found them. I think that's very cool. Well, those are Jim. Are... Jim don't don't move on. Don't move on. Um, just I, I just want to give Michelle a plug here because I read her book and I loved it. And so, listeners, buy Michelle's book. You'll uh-huh. love it too. It's a great story. It's really good fun. Well, well thank you, Sam. That's very well, kind of you. You earned it, not me. 
Wow. Oh, thanks. That's great. And, and on top of that, I, I, I forgot about this. I'm glad you, you interrupted there, Sam. On top of that, Michelle, you also own this this hotel, motel. Well, yeah. Let's throw that but out there again. That That's a third plug. It Jeez, doesn't I matter. It's not guys. a plug. No, no, this isn't a plug. I'm not <laughs> okay. giving you another plug. I'm just talking about it. Yeah, no. Yeah, just uh, it, the motel is is a lot of fun, and I I have actually been really blessed that I'm friends with a lot of people on Facebook and through other social media that are overland riders or overland travelers, and I've had probably twenty or thirty friends stop by to say hello this summer in my new adventure here in South Dakota, and it's it's been fun. So no question, open invitation, stop by for a cup of coffee or a beer or what have you, and and. Uh, I'd love to meet fellow travelers, and if anybody's traveling through the hills, it's it's always fun to share stories and share good roads and and recommend things. And the website? It's chaletmotelcuster.com. Okay, Sam, what do you have for plugs? Uh, I'm going to be really, really greedy. I And I hope you guys and the listeners will bear with me again because um, I want to talk about the U.S. Uh, USA tour dates because um, the tour is going to be starting just after this um, show is released. So, um, one thing before I go any further, um, all the events are free entry except for Overland Expo, of course, which is very different. But before I run through the dates, I've got three thank yous that I'd like to do. And the first, Jim, is to you and Elizabeth for making it possible for me to share the information. And nowadays, so many of the people in the audiences have heard about my presentations from this show. And that's absolutely fantastic. And that leads me on to the second, which is thanks to everyone who comes. It's really good fun linking up with Adventure Rider Radio and Adventure Rider Radio Raw listeners. So, um, yeah, thanks for coming. And the third thank you is to, um, well, listen, many of you will know about um, Eddie Viamoto magazine and will know the team from various events and so on. I need to give them a thank you um, because both for my last tour and this one, they've been a major help with getting the work out, the word out. So um, thanks very much to Carl Parker and the ADV Moto team. And, but and here are the dates. Fabulous magazine, by the way, for those who haven't checked it out, like really stunning magazine to read. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been writing for them for a long time and it's a real pleasure um, to write for them because the stuff they produce, it covers such a wide range and it's always buzzy, well-written and the graphics and so on are just fabulous, mm-hmm. aren't they? Yeah, they really are. Okay, so here we go with the dates. So the first presentation is at GoAZ Motorcycles in Peoria um, in Arizona on September the 6th. And we're going to be um, kick off at 6 o'clock, but 5.30 for nibbles. So there are drinks and, um, and nibbles being laid on. Um, the second presentation is at BMW Motorcycles of North Dallas in Texas. And that's on um, September Friday the 13th. Yeah, so I hope I'm not late for that for some reason. I'm not tempting fate because I'm touching wood. Um, the kickoff for that 6 p.m. The next presentation is Adventure Motorcycles, a motor, um, Adventure Motorsports of um, Northwest Florida. So that's Pensacola, um, and that's on September the 21st. And we're going to kick off at um, 5 p.m. Um, for people to roll in and get settled and so on. But we'll be actually starting the presentation at 5:15. Um, the fourth presentation is at Pandora's European Motorsports in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and that's going to be on September the 24th um, from 6.30 onwards. And the fifth presentation is going to be at Motorcycles of Charlotte in North Carolina on October the 2nd. And the door's going to open at 6.30 um, for nibbles, and then the presentation's going to start at around 7.15. 
And then the sixth set of presentations is going to be at Overland Expo East in um, Virginia. And that's um, from the 11th to the 13th of October um, at Arrington, which is a new venue. And I hear lots of really good things about it. But my new news tonight is that um, for the last two events and a couple of weeks afterwards, Birgit's going to be coming out to the United States to join me. And mm. um, I'm Very absolutely cool. blown away by this. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic because, you know, she hears all of the stories about the people I'm meeting and the places I'm going and all of this sort of stuff. And, you know, she feels quite separate to it. So to be able to be there and um, to be meeting people and to be there riding and seeing some of the United States. And she loves um, traveling in the United States. She hitchhiked across the United States when she was a youngster. Um, so, you know, she has a lot of connections and she's just really looking forward to being back. Um, so it's going to be a complete buzz. I mean, for listeners who don't know very much about Birgit, um, we met when um, I was traveling through New Zealand. I was hitchhiking through because I'd broke my, broken my bike in um, Australia. And she was riding a bicycle <laughs> through New Zealand for um, six months. And we met at a backpackers hostel. And I wasn't looking for a girlfriend. And she certainly wasn't looking for a boyfriend like me. But we kind of clicked. <laughs> And um, as you heard earlier, she came on the back of my bike in India and Nepal for three months. And at the end of that, I said to her, look, I'm going to South America. Would you like to come with me? And she said, well, yep, two conditions. I want to go to Africa first and I want to have my own bike. I thought, well, Africa, I don't mind that. Um, as far as her own bike was concerned, I said to her, look, if you're going to have your own bike, then you need to learn how to service and maintain it. So she bought this beat up old BMW, stripped it down to nothing with a mechanic and put it back together again so she could learn how it worked. And when we rolled out of the port together in um, Mombasa Harbour in Kenya, she'd been riding a motorcycle for 600 miles. This is one hell of a plucky lass. So if you can get along to um, Motorcycles of Charlotte or to Overland Expo, um, yeah, come and, come and nab her. Make her feel welcome. She'd love to meet you. Um, yeah, hope you can make it. Okay, that's great. And I was just going to throw in there a, a plug. Um, if, if you like the bit of story there that Sam just gave you about Birgit and him getting together, they could buy your book, Sam, because you've got four books that has that story in it. Oh, yeah, I always forget to talk about my books, right. don't I? So, so w which book do, does Birgit come into? Well, we meet in the second book, which is Under Asian Skies. Um, so that covers the section where we meet in New Zealand and also um, up in India and Nepal. But we start riding together in um, my third book, Distant Suns, which takes the reader through Southern Africa and then um, for a couple of years heading up through South and Central America. And um, yeah, she has uh, a lot to put up with. As the guys have so kindly not noticed, um, noted to you guys, um, I'm a bit of a disaster magnet, so she has a lot of digging of me out of trouble to do. All, all, <laughs> all you have to do is get the first book into Africa, and I think it'll draw you through the rest. That, that's my experience. Well, once you start reading that, you do, you'll, you'll be drawn to the next one. So you don't have to worry. Into Africa is the first one. Get that one and start there. Um, Shirley, what do you have for a plug? Oh, well, considering my plug is sitting on the other end of the Skype machine from last month, um, I'm, I only have, I'm just going to get in with everyone else and just plug our books. Good on you. Yeah. We, have, we have three books, um, two for the road, Circle to Circle, and The Long, Way, the Long Road to Vladivostok. It's still early in the morning here. Um, and you can either get them on Amazon or any of those sort of, um, what do you call them? 
online shops <laughs> all through our website. <laughs> all through our website, which is aussiesoverland.com.au. aussiesoverland.com.au. Okay. Yeah. I haven't read the, the read the road to Vladivostok yet, so um, I, I'm I, you'll see an order coming up from me on that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've got any any plugs, but I've got some shout outs. So there's there's a couple that um, we helped uh, encourage them to start travelling, and now they're on I think their third trip to Europe. Stephen Sue Fru. Now um, Stephen Sue, some in Australia might know them. They um, have been running the Waves Resort down at Phillip Island. So anyone that's gone down to Phillip Island MotoGP would know where that is. Um, but they've been travelling around Europe for oh, a couple of months now. And Steve um, had an altercation with a car uh, in Spain and um, ended up high-siding and um, going underneath a bit of arm car, getting his hand stuck, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Look, he's okay, but... Um, uh, it just shows you what people are like on the road. You know, he's been able to get his bike to uh, Madrid. Uh, the forks are bent, the the, um, the front wheels bent, and a few things like that. And he, for his sins, I don't know why he's, he, he rides a Ducati. Um, and uh, but you know, he's in a Suzuki shop, and people are helping him out left, right, and centre. It just shows you what people do out there. So a shout out to Steve and Sue. I hope they they get back on the road and start travelling um, as they want to do, while the weather's great over there in Europe. The other plug I've got is for a guy that we met um, last year, Joe Ackroyd, who's um, now got a ride in the Isle of Man Classic TT. He's a racer over there. Joe um, crashed at the Isle of Man a couple of years ago and fractured his back. And he loves the riding, so he's back out there again. And he's riding a Yamaha OW1 um, in the Classic TT. And if you see him going around there, if anyone's going over to the Isle of Man for the Classics, he's on a lot, what's called a Loctite Yamaha, who's the sponsor, obviously. It's a red and white um, OW1. And can ride a bit, Joe, I can tell you. He took us around the Isle of Man track in his BMW car and pointing out his braking marks and all the rest of it. So good luck, Joe. Hope it goes well, mate. And um, the other thing is just for Aussies, you know, get down to the MotoGP at Phillip Island. The, the crowds have been down over the last few years. If anyone's into MotoGP and saw the race um, last weekend where Davizioso cut underneath uh, Mark Marquez on the last corner, it was just fantastic to see. And uh, the MotoGP is not just the racing, it's a whole carnival. All the um, distributors and people like Andy Straps who have a lot of adventure bike gear, they're all down there. So um, I, I'd encourage people to take the time out, get on the bike, come for a ride down to Victoria and see the MotoGP. You were, you were always so uh, tied in with stuff, Brian. It always, it, it always amazes me how much stuff you're into with motorcycling. Um, okay, so now we're moving on to Grant. I can't believe we do you, have you guys looked at the time. I don't. We've never run this long before. Have I been talking <laughs> a lot here? Yes, yeah, you have. Yeah. Oh, okay, hang Jim, on. Stop I'm, talking. I have something Jim, to say. Jim, 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 I'm starving. <laughs> I, I, I swear, I heard. You, I swear, I heard you opening cereal a while ago. Uh, I've just had a mandarin, but I would kill for something else to eat. So come on, jump okay, along. Grant, I'll be Grant, real quick. Grant Johnson, what do you have for plugs? events of course we've got all kinds of events happening uh romania is coming up in next weekend and unfortunately i can't tell everybody to go to it because it's full 
Oh, they're absolutely shockers. Nice. <laughs> yeah, they could they couldn't believe how many people they got, and we're getting emails in every day now saying, "Is there? Can I possibly come? Is it is it okay?" Nope, sorry, it's full, full, full. So that's too bad, but hey, that's a big sign of success there. So that's a brand new meeting, first out, first time out this year. So that's going to be a big one. Fantastic. Um, Italy is coming up in September. We've got France in September. September's a big month. Hags Bank, California, Bolivia, all in September. And then in Germany is October 31st for their... I don't know why they do this one, but it's it's cold in Germany at the end of October, 1st of November, but they have a lot of fun. It's a well-attended event. So Germany, October 31st to November 3. And to round out the year, we have South Africa, November 7 to 10. And that's one, if you're anywhere near there, you've got to go to that one. I mean, this is your only opportunity to ride your motorcycle in a private game park with all the animals. It's mm-hmm. really cool. Not to be missed. And Ecuador, November 22 to 24. If you're in South America, get to Ecuador for November. This will be their second year. They had brave reviews last year. Lots of fun. Great event. Good people. Great place to stay. So check that out. Horizonsunlimited.com slash events. Lots going on. Certainly sounds like it. Yes. Now we're going to wrap things up now, but first I just want to thank you, Michelle, for, for coming on. And I'm sorry we've run so long this time. It's not normal. It really isn't. <laughs> but thank you <laughs> I'm so not much. Sorry. I'm not sorry at all. It's been an absolute ball and a, a complete honor. So thank you for having me and letting me hang out with the cool kids for a little bit. That's <laughs> <laughs> cool about us, not. <laughs> Great to have really you. Really fun having you on the show. Yeah. It has been indeed, Michelle. Thanks to you guys. Now, um, now I have a. I, I'm just going to do a quick plug for for Graham Field because he's not here, but he's going to be at a, at a show called the Discover Overland Show, and uh, he's the headliner there. I think for Friday, it's it's um September 20th to 22nd, 2019, um, Discover Overland Show, and the website is discoveroverland.eu, and Graham's going to be there. I think he's got a, a fairly big presentation that he's doing at this show so if you want to check out Graham discoveroverland.eu September 20th to 22nd 2019 that's the plug for Graham so that wraps things up for this episode thank you very much everyone great job yeah, thanks good fun. Yeah, thanks cheers everyone cheers thank you cheers bye Hey, we're really pleased to have the support of Fresh Tracks. That's freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations, much like I hope we do here on Raw. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and my co-host, starting with Sam Manicom, who lives in the UK. He's a world traveler, writer, and author of Overland Books. You can find out more about Sam at sam-manicom.com. Grant Johnson, also a world traveler, lifelong motorcyclist. He's one of the founders of Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for motorcycle overlanders. Drop by and see what they've got going on, including all the events that they put on around the world horizonsunlimited.com Brian Ricks and Shirley Hardy Ricks from Australia both world travelers authors of some great books from their adventures find out more about them and their escapades at aussiesoverland.com my name is Jim Martin I am the host here at Adventure Rider Radio Raw and Adventure Rider Radio if you don't know about our other show Adventure Rider Radio that's sort of our main show a weekly one Um, just do a search for it or drop by our website adventureriderradio.com thanks very much for listening and we will see you next month.